Hello, and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. On today's album, episode seven, we're going to be getting into the classic live recording by Louis Armstrong, and I think the name of the group is Louis Armstrong and, and his All-Stars. Um, right, Max? That's right. Louis Armstrong and, and his All-Stars, or sometimes Louis Armstrong and the All-Stars. Okay. Either one. Cool. Yeah. So we're getting into this album. It is um, Satchmo at Pasadena in Pasadena, California. And it's a really cool live recording. Lots of the foundations of jazz. But before we get in too deep into it, I want to hit Max with our jazz question of the day like we do every week. Um, So Max, my question for you today, I like to keep it in the theme of what we're talking about for the day. So my jazz question of the day for you today is... There's a lot of clarinet featured on this album and throughout early jazz music. And so my question for you is, why did the use of jazz clarinet die out during the transition from the swing era into bebop? That's a great question. And there's a lot of reasons why. And if you follow, you know, the history of jazz music, every 10 or so years, it developed into something else. So a new subgenre of what we call jazz or american jazz music so especially on this album we're going to be talking a lot about early jazz and there's a lot of different terms to use um one would be trad jazz or traditional jazz sometimes it's referred to as dixieland or hot jazz and in that um kind of era of this music the clarinet was used in the frontal lineup of the horn section so you had trombone clarinet and trumpet or cornet. And along the way, as bands got bigger and bigger, the clarinet had a tougher time coming through loud enough to an audience, or especially during early recording, sometimes the clarinet, um, you know, had to be placed really close to the, to where the, um, wasn't really a mic, but where the funnel was, was catching the sound. And as recording got better, um, and as bands got bigger, the clarinet was used less and less. And also during the era of what we call the Chicago era, when jazz transitioned from New Orleans style into Chicago style, which is kind of the precursor to the swing era, a lot of players started playing tenor saxophone instead of or in addition to the clarinet to get a bigger sound, to get more of a reaction from an audience. And also there were some early sax players like Frankie Trumbauer, who were big influences to people like Lester Young, who started recording jazz music. And so their influence grew and grew and grew, and therefore the saxophone's influence grew and grew. And also the makeup of the bands started using and and um, just just gathering from those recordings, the use of the saxophone more often. Then we get into bebop. And before that, we had the big band era. And a lot of times the big band leaders were clarinet players. So they would be featured kind of out front, but there wasn't a clarinet player as part of the ensemble. So a couple instances of that is Benny Goodman, clarinet player, also Artie Shaw, and also Woody Herman. And Woody Herman also played the saxophone, alto sax, in addition to clarinet. But a lot of those times the band leaders would kind of be out front and they would be featured on a, on a solo section or something and they would 
part-time play clarinet and part-time lead the band. So that was just a natural um, occurrence where the clarinet was really just used a lot less because of that. And then sometimes when saxophone players would double, so in the big band era, they established five saxophones usually. Sometimes there were four early on, but then eventually it was two altos, two tenors, and a baritone sax. And sometimes the second tenor player would double on clarinet in some of the parts and in some of the features. Um, like second tenor uh, Jimmy Hamilton. And in this album, Barney Biggert is on. He was on second tenor, I believe, with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. So those guys, you know, early on kind of started mainly playing saxophone as the transition of the music occurred. And then bebop, by then the saxophone was was the woodwind in a jazz band. Um, the bands got smaller and there were more notes. It was heavier sounds, you know, drum set playing started getting kind of really heavy. Bass was starting to do four on, you know, playing each quarter note, whereas Dixieland or trad jazz, you were doing two, uh, two, four feet, sorry, a, a two beat feel on one and three. And as swing era progressed, you started doing all four. So the bass got louder because they're busier. The drums got louder because they're busier. And uh, as the music went on, piano players got got a little busier. So it's hard for the clarinet to keep up with with just the the massive amount of sound that's being produced. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great answer. And in short, I think to kind of sum up what you were talking about is that the saxophone really took over for the clarinet. The trumpet managed to stay because it does have that big, loud, warm, you know, lots of sound coming from the trumpet, but the clarinet just, it kind of faded as the music demanded more and, you know, the tenor and alto saxophone, saxophones in general are just able to to fit the, the music a little bit better as the, the style progressed. So I think, yeah, it really just people, I think, yeah, like you said, Barney Biggard played the tenor saxophone as well. And I think he played a lot more tenor saxophone later on in his career. Um, so yeah, that's a, a really great answer. And that's the the kind of the short and simple answer is that it really just got replaced by, you know, saxophone as the predominant woodwind in, in jazz music. And also as jazz progressed, you know, um, longer unaccompanied by other horns uh, solos started to occur. You know, early on, you had collective improv from the trad jazz sort of um, practice where you had clarinet, trumpet and trombone, sometimes improvising all together. And so the, when that happens, the clarinet can kind of be heard a little bit better on their higher notes and some of the extended techniques that the players did back then. Um, and then as as time progressed and Louis Armstrong was also important in that where, you know, you would have longer solo features on the horn. And so sometimes the saxophone is just a little bit more interesting to listen to in that setting where you have an extended, you know, saxophone solo. But here on this album, we do get an extended clarinet solo, so you can do it, but it just became kind of out of practice. Yeah, so let's get into um, what goes on and let's get into the album. Let's start with getting into the personnel on the album. I'll go ahead and list them and then we can uh, kind of deep dive because there's a lot of history to get into. Um, this album is basically going to be a history lesson. So if you if you want to know about early jazz, here like here we are. So 
on trumpet and vocals, uh, the great Louis Armstrong on trombone, one of the foundational trombonists of early jazz, Jack Teagarden, like we've mentioned, Barney Biggard on clarinet, uh, Earl Father Hines on piano, um, really influential again to him as well, Arvel Shaw on the bass, Cozy Cole on drums, and the fantastic Velma Middleton on vocals on a few tunes as well. So, Max, why don't you get us started with uh, Louis Armstrong and a little bit, or even a lot of bit, about him and his impact on the music? Well, we could do a whole episode on just the history of Louis Armstrong. Um, but, I, you know, I'll try not to drone on. I'll, I'll just, just some key points in his life to talk about. First of all, you know, we know him as a trumpet player and as a vocalist. He was born in New Orleans in the year 1901. Uh, he grew up as kind of having a rough childhood. He had no father in the home and he was in and out of living with his mom. And early on, there was a family, the Karnofsky family, which was a Jewish immigrant family that more or less kind of looked after him. And I believe the story goes, you know, as he got older and as he was touring the country and playing all the time, he would keep the Star of David, either a patch or a pin on him on his person until the day he died as a memento of all the things that the Karnofsky family did for him. And they just, I believe they bought him his first cornet as well. So they're very influential in his early life. He was kind of in and out of, of living with his mom. So, so they were kind of the only stable um, sort of parental uh, guardians that he could look up to. He also had a couple of times where he went to jail and, and he was kind of roughhousing with the kids on the street. And um, anyway, there's, there's a lot of history there with that. But just so you know, he dropped out of school at age 11. And by then he was kind of starting to play. And he started getting known as a good musician. He was kind of mentored by King Oliver. And he started to work with brass bands and on riverboats. And on the riverboats especially on those gigs he really grew as a musician he learned how to read music on those gigs he was playing all the time he started singing he started singing when he was younger with with some uh guys he grew up with on the street corners and he would busk as well um but here he kind of developed his his vocal ability and his sound he began taking extended trumpet solos on gigs Eventually, he moved to Chicago in 1922 to follow and play with King Oliver. He's on some early recordings with him. Um, and on some of those recordings, it's important to note, Louis Armstrong had a huge sound. And some of what he was doing on the trumpet was not really um, what you should do in good practice. But it was it felt natural to him. And so he just kind of he kind of overblew a little bit. And on those recordings, he had to stand like 15 feet away from the recording mechanism because of his big full sound. He was over playing the leader of the band, King Oliver, <laughs> on those recordings. Um, anyway, then later he, he played with Fletcher Henderson in New York, and then he really got known for his Hot Five and Hot Seven group recordings, Louis Armstrong and the Hot Fives. Um, those are kind of what brought him to the forefront of, of early jazz and of this music. Played a lot with Earl Hines, who's on this record. He gigged in New York, L.A., and um, he started being in movies in the late 30s. So he's he kind of 
became sort of an all-around entertainer during this time. He was also the first jazz musician to be on Time magazine, and that was uh, in 1949. And of course, as the music progresses, he kind of had some issues with the bebop players or just the term bebop in general. He and I think also Cab Calloway referred to bebop music as, quote, Chinese music. <laughs> um, <laughs> and as he, he toured the world, people would ask him, hey, do you ever play bebop? And he would go, I, I don't play bebop. I just play music. Guys who invent terms like bebop are just simply walking the streets with their instruments under their arms, quote unquote. So it's kind of a dig at bop players, you know, he basically saying they're playing too much. They're, they're not popular. Nobody wants to hear them. I play real music. And so there was a kind of swing versus bebop feud there. But later on, he also recorded the the hit track "Hello Dolly," which got him quite quite a lot of money. He toured the world, um, and then of, of course, as he went on, he had a number of different health problems till he passed in 1971 from a heart attack. He's known for his trumpet style and really for his his scat singing. And I would suggest if anybody wants to really dig in and and do a deep dive into Louis Armstrong, go and read the book "Pops" by Terry Teachout. Um, it's a great book. Yeah, that's a lot of, of great history. And there's so much more about Louis Armstrong to learn in a book like that. Um, there are so many great books about, you know, biographies about musicians and that that's a great place to go if you really want to get into to more about about Louis himself. Um, so next up, we've got Jack Teagarden on trombone. And Jack Teagarden was really known as kind of the father of, of jazz trombone, one of the first great jazz trombonists. Max, why don't you tell us a little bit more about his background, his history? Yeah, he comes from Texas originally, born in 1905. His father played trumpet, so he learned trumpet really early on. And, and then by the time he was age seven, he had transitioned from the trumpet to the trombone. Have you ever seen a, a seven-year-old playing trombone? That just... I can't picture that. <laughs> Trombone shorty, uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I, I I don't know if I've ever even seen a seven-year-old hold a trombone, but um, I don't know. That's that's kind of hard to do. You think about the slide and how short their arms are at yeah. that age. <laughs> oh man, that's true. See, I don't know, but anyway, he was he was doing it. He learned really early on. Played professionally by the year 1920, so he was only 15 years old already. You know, on the gig scene. Started traveling the country, moved to New York in 1927, played with the great Big Spiderbeck, Louis Armstrong, Red Nichols, Glenn Miller, and Fats Waller, all sorts of cats. And then he worked with um, Paul Whiteman during the Great Depression as kind of a, an insurance policy as a way to make sure he was getting money on gigs. Because <laughs> um, if, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a well-known, I don't know, sort of cliche when you think of Paul Whiteman and his orchestra, it's very sort of white. It doesn't hit that, that music doesn't swing as hard and it's really arranged and really pop oriented. So I don't think Jack Teagarden really wanted to play with Paul Whiteman, but he did it for the, for the money. 
Yeah, especially uh, during a, a time like that. I think one thing that's important to note about all of the players on these on this album is that they're all really good friends with Louis Armstrong, as well as being like foundational members of early jazz. These guys all basically a lot of them grew up with Louis and knew, met Louis at a, a young age, so all really close friends with Louis as well. That's true. Um, that's re- yeah, really important to to note and. Later on, you know, he he continued his his playing with Louis Armstrong. Eventually, he led his own band for a while, and then he passed in the year 1964 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm, So he was pretty, fairly young, I guess, 59, still pretty young. Yeah, still a little young. A lot of these cats on this album, though, lived a long life, a lot of them in their 70s and 80s um, before they passed. But, yeah, Jack Teagarden passed a little early. Cool. Well, let's get into uh, Barney Biggard, who is on clarinet, um, another guy that Lewis met um, fairly young. So he was born in New Orleans in 1906, and his uncle was a jazz violinist. And Barney learned to play the clarinet and music while he was in school. And then Barney moved to Chicago as well as many other great cats did. Um, to play with King Oliver, just like Louis or Louis Louis Armstrong, um, and so that's where he met, uh, or I, that's where he f- started playing with Louis Armstrong. I think I'm not I'm not exactly sure if they played together before that. No, I think you're right. I think it it all started in Chicago, right in the mid 20s, yeah, the late 20s. And so um, Barney also joined the Duke Ellington or- Orchestra in in 1927 until 1942 so a very long stint with the duke ellington orchestra which is very well known in in jazz and then barney had a kind of a different uh trajectory in his career and he moved to la to play on soundtracks and um he even starred in a few movies and so that's an, an interesting kind of trajectory away from you know kind of the mainstream or you know the way jazz was going and so, yeah, he recorded a few different albums as a band leader, but most often he was um, playing with either, you know, King Oliver early on, Louis Armstrong on many albums, and then the Duke Ellington Orchestra a lot. And he passed in 1980, so lived a, a fairly long life, like we were saying. And um, he, he was very influential in bringing tenor sax more into the forefront during the Chicago era. We were talking about how kind of the clarinet was was dying out and, you know, Barney realized that early and brought the tenor sax more into the the forefront and led to guys like Charlie Parker and, and guys like that um, developing the bebop style. Yeah, he's one of the cats some guys sleep on, um, but really you, everyone should check out a little Barney Biggard, either on clarinet or tenor. Um, but yeah, he was one of those guys that was in Chicago at the right time, at the right place, that helped transition the music um, from the use of the clarinet into the use of the saxophone more and more and more. And um, he's just one of the one of those guys that that really you should check out. Um, and then another one of those guys you should really check out is Earl Hines, the piano player. His nickname is Father. He's kind of the father of jazz piano. Dwayne, since you're a keys player, do you want to take up talking about Earl Father Hines? Yeah, he's another guy like Lewis. I mean, like all these guys, really, who we could talk about for a really long time. We'll try to give you the cliff notes right now, and there's going to be more that we talk about as far as his style once we get into the album. But like Max said, he really shaped 
the history of jazz and he was a very critical link in the movement from stride and ragtime into swing and then into early bebop super super influential like the the link there um he was born in 1903 these guys were all born around the the same time except for uh arvel i think is a little bit younger um but all born around the same time all about the same age he was born in pennsylvania and he started playing piano in the pittsburgh area by the age of 11 and then he left home at 17 years old to play and he was one of the first black americans to perform on the radio in 1921 and then like many others he moved to chicago in the the mid 1920s he moved in 1925 um and that's where he met louis armstrong as well that's where a lot of these guys met was playing you know falling king oliver and you know the the progression of jazz music um in in chicago so that's that's where earl hines headed and um yeah there oh and one thing that's interesting is in chicago they were they dealt with the the mob a few times and um he was deemed al capone's mr piano man and i think it's interesting that's what uh, al capone called him as well i think was piano man so yeah there's a history of of <clears throat> a, a deep relationship between jazz musicians and the mob um lewis armstrong had a run in with the mob too and for part of his touring he he was kind of he was booking the gigs because he was kind of trying not to get in in the way of the mob the mob was kind of after him for a period of time and there's a story of fats waller and we'll talk about fats mm. waller later on as well where he was taken and and kidnapped after a gig thrown into a car with you know the sheet over the head he didn't know what was going on. He thought he was going to die. And um, it turns out he was being kidnapped to go play for a party. Yeah. <laughs> I think, was that for Al Capone too? I don't know I don't... who it was for, but that's a really, that's a very famous story. Yeah, he yeah. thought he was dying and they were just like, no, we just need you to play. <laughs> <laughs> they kidnapped him to play at a party. And, he, and you know, I'm sure they paid him well and everything, but man. Uh, just that's the mob way it's like we're not gonna ask you we'll just kidnap you <laughs> <laughs> so you can't say no and also a lot of the places um cats played later on in in earl Hines's career he he played a lot at a venue that was owned i think by the mob and a lot of these guys were in and out of of you know actual performance venues or clubs or bars that were op owned and operated by the mob so there's a lot of dealings with with the Italian mob, and and sometimes there were some some Jewish guys too. There was kind of a, a smaller Jewish mob community as well um, that you'll see in the history of this music. And so this is just one of those times where where that history comes up. And Earl Father Hines had had to deal with that quite a bit. I mean, it was for one, it was job security, um, but two, you know, you're just dealing with with kind of just some some dirty gritty dealings um, with with some of the stuff that they did. Yeah. I think one thing as well as the, um, the prohibition eras, early jazz and these guys, when they moved to Chicago, this was the middle of the prohibition era. So a lot of places were, they play in speakeasies. Jazz was really big in speakeasies. So those were places that the mob were pretty rampant because for them to get alcohol, a lot of times it ran through the mob and illegal crime organizations. So I think that's kind of, 
a reason why they're, you know, can be intertwined as well is because a lot of the places, the venues, you know, sometimes were illegal speakeasies where they'd be playing, which were ties to, to the mob as well. So, um, one, you know, Earl definitely influenced a lot of people, but one person he influenced a lot was Art Tatum, who had heard some of Earl Hines's music that would was broadcasted on the radio. And so he he influenced many others, but a, a distinct influence on Art Tatum, who then went on to, you know, there's this kind of jazz piano lineage. Art Tatum went on to influence so many other cats. And so Earl Hines kept playing. Um, he played with some of the early bebop guys, and he had a bit of, of a lull in the late 50s, but then a resurgence um, in 1964, and then he played a lot until he died in, in 1983. Yeah, a couple things to, that I want to say really quickly, and we'll move on, is um, a lot of guys did that. It, Earl Father Hines kind of had an extended... I think it was like 12 year, 13 years um, where he was gigging at this kind of one place for, for that period of time. And a lot of kind of early bebop players played on that gig with him. And so he influenced a lot of, a lot of guys from, from all, all sides of this, of the development of this music. Um, and he had the lull in the late fifties for a number of reasons. One was because he actually started I think he had had a couple kids and a wife, and I think he opened up a tobacco shop, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. right around that time. And he was almost about to quit playing music altogether. And then he booked some really big concert, I think, in, in 1964, and that kind of brought him back into the mainstream. And then he, he started getting calls again and again, and he toured internationally and was really busy later on in his life more than you would think as an as a kind of early jazz pioneer yeah and a super interesting story you mentioned um some of the early bebop guys coming to play with earl hines a really fun story that i'll tell before we move on is that he was um pretty influential in charlie parker's early history and he actually fired charlie parker because charlie had an issue with being on time and there yeah. are, there's even stories of Charlie sleeping literally under the stage so that he wouldn't miss the hit. He would sleep at the gig so that he couldn't be late. So I think that's that's a pretty funny uh, um, little side note there is that he was he was super influential. And a lot of the early bebop cats um, would go through playing with him. So Charlie Parker, you know, Bird was one of the guys and uh, he uh, got fired at one point because he couldn't be on time. It got to the point to where Bird was, was sleeping on the gig. I know it's crazy the different personalities and the behaviors of of some of these guys that we'll talk about. But you know, if you can't show up on time to the gig, I'm not wanting to call you again, even if you are Bird. I don't care. Yeah, I think Bird's <laughs> entrance into jazz is very interesting. His stories, he was just the will of. We'll get into Charlie Parker at a later point, but just the will. I mean, he had um, who was it? Papa Joe Jones that threw a cymbal at him. You know. Yeah, that was when Bird was sitting in at a jam session, and yeah. he was like 15 or 16, and you know he 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 had potential, but he started dragging on the song and losing time during his solo, and so for that reason, Papa Joe kind of uh, vibed him, and and the story goes that Papa Joe threw a cymbal on on the, to the stage while Bird was was playing a solo or towards the end of it, and that kind of 
That was that it. Was that it. was it. That was like And that motivated Bird to practice his butt off in the in the shed, you know, as we referred to it. Um and he practiced, I think, like twelve hours a day for three years, you know, something like that. And then really started hitting the scene and, and really developing this music from from you know what he was um getting from from other players on gigs and, and really helped pioneer the bebop movement. But yeah, there's a lot of stories of, of interactions between these kind of swing era, um, you know, trad jazz guys and the more modernists that would come. Exactly. Yeah. They molded, you know, they really shaped Charlie's, you know, motivation and his, you know, wanting to move the music forward. So I think it's interesting their influence they had on him in, in many ways, you know. So let's get into, um, why don't you tell us about Arvel Shaw, who's on the, the bass, Max? Yeah, I'm going to just briefly talk about Arvel Shaw and Cozy Cole. Um, Arvel Shaw is the bass player on this record. He was a St. Louis guy, born in 1923, learned bass in high school. He eventually played with Louis Armstrong in, in 47, off and on, again in the 50s and 60s. So he was a mainstay for, for Pops. Um, if you don't know, Louis Armstrong has a couple different nicknames. One is Satchmo, which the record is called Satchmo at Pasadena. One is also called, uh, we call him Pops, and a lot of musicians called him that because he's kind of the, the father of, of some of this music. Um, and he, I don't know, I've seen conflicting reports. I've seen where he prefers Louis, and then there's, I've, I've seen also, there's been a member of his family saying that Louis was okay to use. A lot of people in the media and the entertainment industry referred to him as Louis Armstrong, and a lot of people perceive that as kind of a widernization of of the entertainer of Louis Armstrong and and uh, see it as kind of insensitive. But I've seen conflicting reports. Um, but and usually, he did, ref- he did yeah. refer to himself as Louis at points. Yeah, I every think once later, in a while. later on, especially he started to to refer. But that when that moniker has become you know synonymous, you know. But early on, it was pretty much he called himself Lewis, and then right. a little later on, he would get into sometimes referring to himself as Louis as well. Yeah, I, I I'll try to use either Lewis or Pops most of the time. Um, so anyway, back to Arvel Shaw. He was a, a mainstay player for Pops. He also performed with Teddy Wilson and Benny Goodman. And he was really kind of a New York local guy until he passed away in 2002. So he lived a a pretty long life as well. And then the drummer on this album is Cozy Cole, who is a a well-known figure on the drum set, born in New Jersey in 1909. His first gigs were with a guy named Wilbur Sweatman. If you don't know Wilbur Sweatman, please look him up. Look up his music. He's a really, really early pioneer of what we call trad jazz or, or Dixieland swing. And he um, just was very influential in this music. Um, so Cozy Cole's kind of first gigs were with Wilbur Sweatman. He's also known for working with Jelly Roll Morton, Cab Calloway, Benny Carter, and of course Pops. And Cozy Cole had kind of a billboard hit. Um, it's called Topsy 1 and Topsy 2. And those, I think he sold a million records. And it was a, a kind of a, an elongated drum feature those those two singles are and that kind of um brought him to the forefront and a lot of people know his name from from topsy um he was also known for having drum battles with gene krupa um so a lot of times you know they 
on television and stuff, they would have a lot of times drum set um, battles between two drummers back and forth. They would do that with Buddy Rich. Um, I think Art Blakey did that as well. And anyway, Cozy Cole was one of those guys that was often paired with Gene Krupa. And Cole would go on to pass away in 1981. Yeah, and let's get into the the final member, um, Velma Middleton. I think it's important to note that um, so Cozy Cole, Cozy Cole, Earl Hines, Barney Biggert, and Jack T. Arden were all born around the same time as Louis Armstrong, and Arvel Shaw and Velma Middleton were a little bit younger, and they didn't move to Chicago at the same time. They were born around that time that all those guys moved to Chicago, so they were kind of later additions into to the band the Louis Armstrong and and his all-stars so Velma Milton she's a vocalist born in Oklahoma in 1917 and she um, got the beginning of her career in St. Louis Missouri she was a chorus girl a dancer she performed in South America as well and she joined Armstrong's big band in 1942 like we're saying a little bit later and um, she performed with with Lewis until her passing in 1961, so a long stint um, with Lewis Armstrong. And uh, an interesting story is uh, she had a stroke while they were on tour in Sierra Leone, and uh, Barney Biggard was critical of Pops and the manager Joe Glasser after they didn't seek to move Velma to a country with with better health facilities. So. Um, a little bit critical of, of them, you know, maybe not getting her back to the States to get the care that she needed. Yeah. They didn't treat her right. Um, right there. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into a tour, you know, you have to be somewhere at the right time, the right place. You have to have all your, you know, your instruments, you gotta have everyone together, yada, yada. But, um, what happened was Velma suffered a stroke on, I guess, after a gig that they were doing in Sierra Leone. And then she was hospitalized, but she didn't pass away until a month later. So there was a month lull where, you know, Joe Glaser and, and Louis Armstrong could have seeked to move her to, to a country with better health facilities. But um, for one reason or another, they didn't. Maybe they didn't have the, the money to pay for it or they, they didn't think about it. But, yeah, Barney Bigger was pretty critical of them. And it's, it's a little sad story. Um, and Velma Middleton is, is not that well known, but she is known in association with Louis Armstrong. So she was a part of both his big band and his, and this group, the all-stars and the big band disbanded, uh, right around 1947. And then that's when this group, Louis Armstrong and his all-stars kind of started. And that was, um, in conjunction with a, a recommendation from the manager, Joe Glaser. Awesome. So now that we kind of have all that history, we know how the band started this iteration, you know, the the history of these guys meeting and getting to this point, which is, what are we, in 1954 now? Um, 51. 51. Okay, 51. so let's get into the album itself and the first track on the album, which is the tune entitled Back Home in Indiana. And so this... Um, this is an older tune and and a, one of the kind of original traditional jazz or Dixieland tunes. And in 1917, it was um, one of the pop tunes that was selected by Columbia Records to be recorded by the original 
Dixieland jazz band. And so they released it um, as a 78. And so it's one of the earliest jazz records that um, that was recorded. And so it's become yeah. a, a jazz standard. And Louis Armstrong and the All-Stars would play this pretty much all the time. Right. And I want to say two things. Number one, um, at that time in 1917, the term Dixieland was only being used to refer to the band, the the original Dixieland jazz band. Mm -hmm. That term was not being used to talk about this music um, for a couple of reasons. One, because the rest of the country had to catch up to New Orleans and actually hear the music to know what it was. But number two, um, that term Dixieland is kind of used because of of those recordings made from the band um, that used that in their name. And then the second thing is Back Home Again in Indiana is is a great tune, and it's also associated with the great Lester Young. He has a lot of great versions of it. And later on, Bird, Charlie Parker, used that as a basis for his tune Donna Lee, which we call a contrafact. So a contrafact is a song or a melody that's written on top of a previous song's structure and chords. Um so the song form is the same, but the melody is different. And you can also substitute different chords at different parts in the form as well. But it's good to note that this is used as a contrafact, and it's a major tune. And I think one thing that's interesting is we were doing our research and writing about this is I accredited Donna Lee to Miles Davis, who has tried to take credit for the tune. I think I'm with Max that I... I I'm pretty sure it's a Charlie Parker tune, but uh, there's been a history of uh, Miles trying to take credit for the the writing of of the tune. Yeah, I don't understand that. I've always known it as a bird head, as a bird tune. There are a couple of moments, you know, where if you know the history of, of early bebop or the development where Bird and Miles were playing together, there are quite a few instances where Bird takes advantage of miles davis so it's possible um maybe miles originally came up with a lot of the head but there's really no way to be certain of that and to me it sounds like something bird would make um not necessarily miles but yeah you're right it sometimes when we were researching it it came up as a miles davis tune and i was like no i don't think so but we don't really know i guess yeah there is kind of a a question mark um but we also know that We've kind of talked about this before. Miles can kind of uh, take undue credit, or he uh, would take credit for songs that other guys in the band would write, even if he was just there during the writing, whether or not he had a big part of it or not. So sometimes it's hard to know exactly how much of a role Miles played in writing a tune when he's credited with the song. But one thing before we get into the song, I want to talk about... um, quote unquote, what we now know as Dixieland jazz or is known as traditional jazz and the instrumentation and how it's different from what we know as jazz today. So um, originally it was with a tuba and a banjo. When you go real back in New Orleans, you get the tuba, the banjo. But then when it modernized in Chicago and all these guys moved to Chicago onto the use of the bass and the guitar, which were instruments that were more commonly used in Chicago than in new Orleans. And so that's the instrumentation we see here is this Chicago style of, of jazz at the end during this time. And so there are essential elements that were accepted within the style as well, which 
the traditional front line like we talked about, which is the use of trumpets, trombones, and clarinets to uh, form an ensemble with the improvisation over the two-beat rhythm like Max talked about. So those are kind of the key things in traditional jazz is that two-beat rhythm and the front line. And you'll get a lot of times when they're playing the melody – what we know with more modern jazz is it's one person playing the melody and that's all you get. But here, a lot of times you'll get one person playing the melody and maybe not playing the melody straight to the the book. And then you'll get a lot of kind of improvisa- improvisation from the front line in the background, which we get a lot here. So just wanted to talk about the history of that before we get into to this one. That's right. Yeah. Um, early jazz, you're going to have tuba and banjo instead of bass and um, guitar. So you got to know that. And usually, yeah, you're right. The lineup, like I mentioned earlier, clarinet, trumpet, trombone. And those three, there's kind of a, a, a certain way to interact with each other, you know, when there's collective improv. So usually the first time through, the trumpet would do melody. And the second time through, um, it would be more soloistic. But maybe both times through the form, all instruments of the front line would be playing and interacting with each other. And a lot of times the trombone would do more with the slide. You know, they make certain sounds that, that, that only the trombone can make. And the clarinet would do a lot of um, high note um, screams or squeals or a lot of trill techniques that really only the clarinet player could do on his instrument. And then the trumpet was kind of really in the forefront doing the melody most of the time. Yeah, there definitely is a unique and distinguishable sound to this front line. And so we get that here. And like Max was talking about the roles between the the different instruments. So let's get into this album itself. Like we were talking about, Lewis plays the melody, but there's that constant improvisation going on behind it by the trombone and the, the clarinet. And sometimes the piano is doing like some of that improv- improvising as well with some trills and fills and different things. And so... Yeah, that's what you expect from a melody of this era. Um, Max, what do you think about about the melody? Oh, melody's awesome. Um, Lewis kind of does it in, in his way. Also, when the track starts, um, it's, it's Pops um, talking to the crowd. So you get right away the entertainment factor of Lewis Armstrong and how he interacts with the crowd so well. And his energetic inflections he'll make when he's speaking, usually at the tail end of, of when he's talking to the crowd, is so unique and so important to the entertainment um, part of, of what he does. And, and you get that right on the first track. The rhythm section kind of opens the song and does one time through the 16 bars. You can hear the role of the clarinet that we were talking about with Trad Jazz by Barney Biggard, playing a lot of kind of noty feel, fills, excuse me, during the head and as i mentioned the second course that they're doing it's like an almost trumpet solo but the trumpet is is really just doing kind of his version of the melody pops is playing a lot from the melody and and adding a lot to it and and kind of sometimes he's kind of fully improvising but the trombone and the clarinet are behind him improvising as well yeah, and I think that's one thing that's important to note is this is really the beginning of improvisation and that technique. So they're doing a lot of improvising. And a lot of times now we know that, all right, you play the melody and then you get into improvising. Back then they were just kind of constantly improvising. And that's the beauty of the music. They really developed, you know, the improvisational techniques. So, yeah, a lot of times Lewis would 
basically be improvising over like while playing the head like play the melody as well as lots of improvisation um intertwined so yeah really just the beginning of they did a lot of improvising because that's what was what was hip at the time that's right they're keeping that early early jazz tradition even though this record is 1951 and by this time we have bebop and we have kind of early early blues and r&b um pop tunes and stuff they're they're keeping those those traditional aspects of early jazz when they're playing on a lot of this album um and then the first full actual solo we get here is from the piano from father Hines. it's super swinging you can really tell his style and ability from his solo here there's a lot of nice sweeps up and down the instrument it's um unfortunately just one chorus but that's also because a lot of early jazz, you only had time for one chorus or maybe two choruses, if it was a blues, for shorter solos on the record um, because of the uh, just the technological limitations of the procedure to record an album early on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of times it was uh, 45s that were coming out, but now they got to use um, the 78s. Right. Well, the seven, uh, other way around, seventy. Yeah, seventy-eights were first, and and you're right that they were limited. Like a forty-five is a forty-five is just a single. Yeah. Um, single on either side of the record, and and seventy-eights were kind of the earliest um, form or of of technology for for the record, and then we get into thirty-threes and a third, which is kind of what we know today as as the LP record. Exactly. So, this was you know, when they start to move into more of like getting into 45s and then 33s. But so, yeah, this is in the style when there were only 78. So guys were only taking one chorus. Um, but yeah, this this solo is really interesting. Louis Armstrong sings the melody while Earl Hines is playing the solo, which I think is pretty interesting. Kind of in the background. Yeah, he's like in the background. Yeah. It's not over top of him, but he's singing the melody of of the tune um, in the background while Earl Hines is playing. And I think this solo just really well illustrates the roots of jazz piano playing. And Earl Stein on this, Earl, Earl, sorry, Hines <laughs> style on this one. Um, it has a lot of ragtime and stride feel to it. Um and with the rhythm and the runs like Max was talking about. so And one thing that Earl Hines is known really well for is his use of rhythm. And so you get a lot of that from ragtime and and stride, the syncopated rhythm. So Earl Hines takes that and develops that. But he's really illustrating those styles super well on his solo on this one. Yeah, and then we actually get a bass solo, um, which I kind of wasn't expecting. A lot of early jazz, you wouldn't have the tuba or the bass solo. Um but here, you know, obviously we can because of the change in technology and you can open up a little bit and stretch. So here we actually get a bass solo. It's very rhythmic. He has some nice, really nice outlines. And again, it is just one chorus. Um, did you have anything on that bass solo? Yeah, just a few short things. Um, I, I like that they have the bass solo uh, and it's very rhythmic and very staccato in his playing. And I love he does a triplet line at like 237 to 240 that I really like. And then he highlights the changes um, really well when he's playing from 242 to 245. Those were the two kind of things that stuck out to me about his solo there. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I I was really surprised at, at how much the bass is featured on this album. Pleasantly surprised. Um, and it's you said it was kind of very rhythmic and staccato. 
it's important to talk about sw- the 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 feel of the swing feel also developed in the history of jazz from what we call trad jazz or Dixieland all the way through bebop, you know, swing era through bebop into post bop and 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 beyond. You know, the swing feel is very specific for each of those eras in the music. So earlier jazz is a little more straight. It's 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 still swung especially on solos, but it it's just a little more um it's just a little more straighter and less of a of a an extended full on swing feel. It's like more you about get, the syncopation than it is about the necessarily the swinging of the of the beat. That's right. More yeah, more about how you're playing it rather than the length of the rhythm that you're playing. Um so just important to note that. And then we get a trumpet uh a solo, full actual solo. And I think Lewis here has incredible phrasing. You can hear the style of of early swing or, or pre-bop and how you solo from from this trumpet solo it's kind of shorter one bar or two bar phrases so his phrasing is really spot on and you can hear the style right away and i also really enjoy hearing the vibrato that pops has on the trumpet yeah i agree i really like i mean his style is so unique most people are can recognize his trombone or his, his trumpet playing as well as his singing and so, yeah, I, I really think it's it's interesting the use of the shorter ideas, and that's something that's very common in this this early traditional jazz form. You know, these guys were playing just lots of different ideas, and so that kind of later on we got more of the fleshed out ideas and introducing ideas and really working them in and weaving them into the changes. Um, so yeah, it's cool. It's very stylistic of of Lewis on this one, and he does a really cool uh, like lip bend at uh, three twenty that I really like, which is kind of a a Louis Armstrong kind of thing to do. Absolutely. Um, and then we, we get a clarinet solo and this actually has some backgrounds from the brass a little bit at the start of the solo. Um, Barney Biggard on clarinet sticks to a lot of the mid to higher registers of the horn. Um, that's one, so he can be heard, but two, also you can do a lot, um, stylistically in that range of the clarinet. I love the high pitched squeal, and it's kind of like an iconic clarinet scream that occurs at 337. And there's a lot of nice downward moving triplets and 16th notes that he does right at 342. And his solo kind of nicely tapers off into the lower octave and the lower end of the clarinet right around the four minute mark. It's just shaped, um, shaped really nicely. Those are literally the notes that I have on this one. 337, the scream, the bending of that is awesome. Cool chromaticism at 342. And I love his just great use of dynamics and the different timbres because the clarinet is di- very different in the, the different ranges. It sounds very different from the low end to the higher end. So he does a good job of using the different kind of timbres you can get out of the, the clarinet. And then they go into an outro, which is kind of just like a group improv, New Orleans style um, thing. And then they start trading sections during the, the outro. Yeah, they trade with the drums a little bit. There is also a trombone solo, uh, I believe, right before that happens. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's it's Jack Teagarden. You know, you get awesome awesome phrasing. He kind of uses shorter s- spaces that really help move a solo, so you can hear that kind of early jazz phrasing in the trombone solo, too. It's not too much. It's not too little. It's just right. And then you're right. They get into a collective improv section that trade eights with the drums, and then they trade fours, 
and then they collectively improv until the end of the song and there's no repeat of the actual melody and you'll hear that a few times on this record and that's kind of in the tradition of early jazz um, but sometimes they would repeat the head but here they don't and i love the long held out trumpet note that pops plays at the very end to end the tune it's a really super fast vibrato i think it lasts four bars it's just really well executed yeah it's a it's a cool ending and one note that i have about the ending is after he belts out that note and they end the tune there's some speaking from lewis and it's just mumbo jumbo and i don't understand a single word he's saying and I, I've noticed that maybe this is the key to swinging hard because a guy I love, Milt Buckner, would do this all the time where they're just mu- like, I don't, they're just like, and I'm like, what are you saying? And so Lewis, but this is, I mean, Lewis is from New Orleans. So there's a lot of Cajun influence and a lot of words get mixed together like dat or were yet and you mom and them and stuff like that. So there, sometimes sure. Lewis is talking and I'm just like, yeah, I didn't pick up a word of that. So Lewis, that's he does that, and I have no clue what he says at the end of the song. But uh, that's the the key to swing is just a little uh, mumble interjection, apparently. But it helps so much with the energy, and it kind of almost cues the audience. It's like, okay, we're done now. Yeah, and then it's right. They don't need that- to know what he said. He just they no. need to know that he's like, hey, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the music. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because you do get that a few times on this record. And I think that's just part of his entertainment factor and a part of early jazz music history that cats would do that. And as they age, they, they kept that in their music and as their, um, as part of their performance. Yeah, for sure. You hear a lot of guys and guys will sing when they're playing their solos, but Milt would just mumble while he's playing his solos. He'd be like, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be singing what he's playing. He'd be soloing and he'd be like, and it's just like, I don't, there's something to it. So it's, it's cool. It's just like a a cool little tidbit about, about the music. So let's get into the, the second tune. The second tune is a very famous tune. Most of you probably know it. Uh, Baby, it's cold outside, which is written by Frank Losser. And we've actually talked about Frank Losser before on our Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderley episode. So we're not going to get super into his background. If you want to know about him, go and check out that episode because it's great and that album's great. So, yeah, he's Matt- just, yeah, I was just going to say he's one of the, you know, Broadway composers we always talk about. He's well known for the, the show Guys and Dolls. Um, but yeah, we've talked about Frank before. It's either Frank Lesser or Loser or Lozier. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. Yeah, he's he's Jewish, right? Yeah, yeah, so Jewish back. I should know. You'd know better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll have to ask my grandmother on that one. Um, but yeah, this is Baby It's Cold Outside, one of his kind of more most famous tunes. Um, I remember, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but I remember a few years ago, people were were calling this song out and trying to cancel it. They they saw it as predatory, and it was during the Me Too movement. Um, here, I think they treat it really well. This is the first one you get with Velma Middleton, the, the vocalist, and the interaction between Pops and Velma is 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 so great. and And they treat the song in such a such a positive light. What do you think? Yeah, I didn't know if we were going to go into this because I there. So I think one thing that happened is and this is perfect that we get to listen to in this way is people just hear the words of the song and they think of it in a certain way and they don't think of 
the context in which the song was written or what it was meant, it's not necessarily meant to be so literal. And so you hear it in kind of a comical way, you know, and the way that they perform the song, it's a performance, you know, about something. It's not super serious. And so I think I'm glad that we get it in that way because I don't think we need to cancel this tune for God's sake. It was written so long ago. Um, and things, you know, I, it's, yeah, I just, I think it's a good tune and I don't, I don't see the need to cancel it. Obviously some of the stuff that goes on is like, eh, 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 but it's just like it, it was written that way intentionally. That's what you know. And the way um, Velma is 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 using the lyrics to her advantage, and and just the not only the comedic effect, but in the interaction between the two, it's you know, typically in the song, it's kind of call and response. Hey, baby, can you stay a while? It's cold outside. Um, don't you don't need to go anywhere. Let's just huddle up on the couch and, and see what happens. It's kind of the gist of, of the interaction. But Velma plays around and, and makes it seem, I think, how it's kind of originally intended, which is, you know, she, the the woman in the scenario, also wants that to happen, too. It's playful. It's, they're playing. They're it's messing playful. with each other. And so yes. I think that's what they do really good. And Lewis does a really good job. It's They're just jabbing back and forth. It's not like he's trying to like lure her in or anything. And I think they do like, if you listen to this, you can tell it's they're joking around. It's not like he's seriously trying to like, you know, lure her in or anything like that. So it's, it's good to listen to the, some of the original recordings and the older recordings of the tune. That's right. That's right. Um, it's also associated with Christmas a lot, but there's no mention of Christmas or the holidays in the actual lyrics. We just think of it as a Christmas tune because it's in the winter. Yeah, we get so, a lot of songs that are just like, oh, this is a Christmas tune. And it's like, is it a Christmas tune? No, it's tune? not. <laughs> there are a few songs not like really. that throughout history that's like, why is this a Christmas tune? It's like, well, because people play it at Christmas. But let's get that's into right. this tune and this recording itself. So yeah. you get kind of um, an intro and some comping by Jack Teagarden, which is really, really musical and so it's going on while there's kind of some playful banner with Velma and Lewis to kind of set the the scene before they even get into the actual song itself right as the song starts you hear Velma laughing bringing the band in you know it's it's all a kind of humorful and positive it's a nice slower tempo and you're right there's a lot of interplay between Velma and Pops you know, also, they must be doing a lot of gestures and, and physical comedic movements because the audience laughs almost every 10 seconds um, during during their singing so or their interactions. And sometimes they're kind of talking, too, and they, they kind of take a really loose kind of, um, uh, I don't know, very movable approach to this song. Um I know the rhythm section cut, cuts out at one point, um, but generally, you know, when they start, there's some also some nice vocal fills from Pops, um, and there's kind of just some really nice humorful interaction going on. Yeah, I one thing I want to point out is it's almost like you're listening to this and it feels like it's in a play or a musical. It feels like there's definitely acting going on. It's not just them performing the song. They're acting out the scenario, the scene that's going on. So it's, it's really cool and important to note that Louis Armstrong was not only a musician, he was a performer and there were other greats in the time that were 
the same like they were performers not only musicians they were performing to the people not just playing the music and if you like the music you know so you think of other guys like fats waller and guys who really perform on the instrument and like nat king cole and kind of you know guys who were who are like that and ladies who are like that so yeah i love that there's that that interplay that acting um and one thing i like is like you were saying the band is very fluid and free with the tempo they kind of let the dialogue and the scene with the singers dictate the ebbing and the flowing of of the tempo. So I, I love I love that as well. And stylistically, Velma and Pops both have really nice vocal vibrato. So if you listen to that track, really listen for the vibrato. Um, they also have good harmony right at two thirty two when they're singing. You know the the title of the song and the lyrics. And later on, there's some speaking interplay as I alluded to earlier, as the band's um, bass and piano continue. Um, and you're right. You can definitely tell it's a whole entertainment bit. And I honestly, I personally really appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely, I, one thing that you mentioned is the first time that they actually sing together on the tune is when they harmonize the lyrics, it's cold outside. So I think that's a really nice touch. It's all interplay and then, you know, some back and forth. And then when they sing... Um, they're kind of coming together and it's like, oh, but it's cold outside. So kind of like we were talking about, they're messing around, but they're like both like, oh, well, it's cold outside. You're like you are, you know, like maybe I shouldn't go, you know? Yeah. So well, you stay around a while. It's musical and it's, yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. It's, it's, it's cool. It's a really, it's a really fun performance to listen to. Yeah. And then there's also some inter interaction from another band member right at minute marker 435. Somebody from the band chimes in and, and, <laughs> and kind of interacts with what, lewis and, and velma are doing he shouts out quote don't pay that chick no mind and <laughs> <laughs> um i think that's great and lewis continues with that interplay and, and and bounces off of it in in just a very comical way the band stops playing kind of right then and then they come back in right at 459 like nothing had stopped i love when they do this is like the when the um when Arvel Shaw comes in on the bass, like after this, like oh, it's just like literally it's, so perfect when they come back in. It's so musical. It's so hip. It's it's really cool moment when they they do that. It is beyond hip the way they come back in. It's so spot on. It's like nothing had happened before, and they had just continued playing. It it's sounds like, like a soundtrack to a movie. Like someone had, yeah. you know, like oh, they're they're they kill it on that. So yeah, it's spot on. My last um, thing to add to this is just really about Lewis's voice. It's so unique and so distinguishable. Pretty much anyone in jazz and most all people in pop culture can recognize his voice. And so it's the first time we really get a, a taste of it um, fully featured. And it's, yeah, it's just iconic. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want to move on to Way Down Yonder in New Orleans? Yeah, let's get into it, Max. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the tune's history? Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a early on pop song written by John Turner Layton Jr., um, first published in 1922. And Layton Jr. Uh, was a black American songwriter, so typically we're talking about uh, a lot of Jewish songwriters, but this from from a black guy. He often worked with Hen Henry Creamer, who was a lyricist, and both are also known for the standard After You've Gone. And I, I call After You've Gone on gigs sometimes. It's it's just a great kind of swinger a lot of swing era players played and it just fits you know that early jazz style 
pre-bop kind of sound that I that I personally really appreciate. So um, after you've gone is is a just a great tune to call, and it's from this the same composer John Layton Jr. Um, and the song itself, "Way Down Yonder," was a 1927 hit for saxophonist Frankie Trumbauer, and he's a guy I mentioned earlier, very influential sax player early on. He um, aided in in developing Lester Young's sound because Lester listened to him and and copped what he was listening to from those those records, early records, and and part of his sound was kind of foundationally built on what Frankie Trumbauer had recorded. And eventually along the way, Frankie Trumbauer actually settled in, in Kansas City too. That's um, a cool thing to note. And he was contemporary to Bix. We talked about Big Spider back. Um, kind of how you have Lewis and and these guys. Um, you kind of get Frankie and, and Bix together as well. Um, they were contemporaries and I think both in Kansas City, right? Is that where, where Bix? That's yeah, well, that's where Frankie Trumbauer eventually kind of settled. And then Trumbauer's, uh, shoot, I think his son or uh, somebody related to Frankie Trumbauer also taught at University of Missouri, Kansas City for a number of years, I think in the 70s, um, 70s and 80s. So there's, there's a lot of history there um, just with where I am in Kansas City in connection to those guys. Bix was... Um, I, he, he also knew Louis Armstrong, um, and, you know, adored him and early on Bix Spiderbeck was kind of, because I think he was white. There was a lot of, um, issues with having both of them on the same stage together. Um, but yeah, Bix was kind of a, I, I'm not sure where he was from, but he was not from Kansas city that I know of. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking right now. Apparently, he was born in Iowa, so that's really random. Yeah, um, he was he was a Midwest guy originally, but not not KC or St. Louis. Um, I'm not sure. But he actually. did he um he played with the Gene Goldkett Orchestra before joining Frankie Trombauer for an extended engagement at the Arcadia Ballroom in St. Louis. That's not it's not Kansas City. It's St. Louis. Um, okay. So there was some history with those two guys early on, Big Spiderbeck and and Frankie Trombauer, um, and I think they recorded an album together uh, soon after that, as well. Right, and it's after that time that Trombauer made his way to KC and kind of settled in, settled in here later on. And uh, another yep. link um, with these guys and uh, with, um, who was it? Jack Teagarden is uh, they all played in Paul Whiteman's orchestra, Big Spiderbeck. Frankie Trombauer and and Jack T. Garden. So, yeah, a gig is a gig is a gig. Lots and of connections, uh, but between these guys, and they're all contemporaries. Just you know, kind of in different places at different times. Sometimes playing with with different people. Let's get into the the tune itself and the form of the tune. And so, one thing um, that's really cool is this song has a lot of the building blocks to jazz harmony structure in the changes, but not quite the standard form of, of a jazz tune yet. It's not the AABA form yet. So this song has a lot of five to one movement. And one thing that's interesting is that they only play the chorus. They don't use the the verse chords, which the verse chords start on the one, but the chorus starts on the five and goes five to one before using some minor two fives to go to the four. That's a good point. A lot of these early jazz tunes have a verse and a chorus, 
Whereas later on, Katz just simply played the chorus of the song and the verse, um, you know, it, a lot of times it wasn't as catchy and it was kind of seen as an opener to the actual main theme of the song, which was played during the chorus. Some tunes I like doing the verse or want to do the verse and a lot of other tunes, you just play the chorus like normal. Um, and they do that here on way down yonder in new Orleans. Um, yeah. So it is kind of a, a different form too, kind of 28 bar form. And like you said, they don't play the verse, for the chord structure, you're right. It's a lot of five to one, and there's some two fives to the four. And they use the six chord and the flat six chord in the 24th bar. And to me, that chord and that harmony comes out to me the most. Listen for that mm -hmm. um, for that flat six harmony in that 24th bar. And a lot of early tunes kind of use that, but that's that's a that's a moment you gotta listen for. Yeah, and it's really cool. It's really hip. You can tell that chord is is different. Um, it kind of stands out, and they're using it in a really cool way. They're kind of using it as a like a way to get from chromatically from six to five. So they're going one six one flat six, and then one five, which is cool. Right. So yeah. they're using that, and that's kind of you know you start to get more movement like that where you are going to move from you know sixes, flat sixes, and ways to get to different places. So we're kind of starting to get that that foundation with the you know the movement five to ones and the the minor two fives and some sixes and whatnot here. And that chromatic harmony is kind of fundamental to jazz harmony. Usually we think of jazz harmony. If we were going to describe it, we we think of it as chromatic harmony. You know, mm -hmm. you can move chromatically um, and, and build from there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really, uh, I want to get into some of what uh, Earl Hines is playing and on his solo. If you don't have anything else, is there anything you wanted to mention before that? No, um, there is a pop solo, um, but I think, you know, it's, you, you get a lot of, uh, or is, no, I think you're right. Hines' solo is first. Yeah. Okay. So I'll get I'll into that about... and then we can. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Go ahead. One thing, um, I kind of mentioned this before, but just lots of cool rhythmic stuff going on with Earl Hines. And this is really what he was known for is really indicative of his style. And it's indicative of early jazz piano is the complex rhythms. Um, so it's really cool. He uses kind of both hands at once, which is kind of comes from ragtime and stride where you get kind of complex rhythms going on between both of your, your hands at the same time. And so, yeah, the rhythms are just really complex a lot of times. And he uses polyrhythms a lot, which is kind of comes from ragtime as well. And, uh, if anyone doesn't know what a polyrhythm is, it's when you play two meters like at the same time. So you you know four on one hand and three on the other is a four three polyrhythm that that gets played a lot. Um, there's you could do any kind of polyrhythm four three three two. So Earl Hines definitely lots of there's some polyrhythmic stuff going on in his playing with you know maybe using triplets in one hand and eighth notes or quarter notes in in the other hand that'd be a polyrhythmic idea. Yeah, you're right. Um... There's just a lot you can get from Earl Hines when he's soloing. And you, you see kind of the history, or rather you hear the history of the music in his playing. And that's just a neat aspect when you're listening to Earl Father Hines. Um, I love the cool short-length trills that he does as well. And there's a lot of short-range falls. You don't like fall after a phrase. You fall from one note to a note that's a third or a fourth away. And you fall 
um, in between chromatically all the notes in between those two notes of that interval. And I think in general, he uses a fantastic range on the piano itself. He's using the full piano. Yeah. And I think, um, it's just, you can hear the development of jazz piano through, even on this album through Earl Hines. So what Max is talking about is a stride idea when you use those runs to go and Errol Garner, just great pianist, a lot of stride techniques. When you'd use runs to get from one place to another, and maybe later on, there's going to be space there when you get into bebop or there's going to be different. You don't run from one place to another. You use kind of like leading tones or something to get from one place to another. So just you hear the development of, of the jazz piano style. And so, yeah, you just get like that early style coming through here um, on Earl Hines' solo. Max, what do you think about, about Lewis's solo on this one? Um, I think it's more dynamic. That's why I was kind of excited to get into it <laughs> <laughs> earlier on. Um, but I, I think we get a little more from Pops here. There's some nice chromatic connections he makes. There's really nice accents. So the way he's articulating the differences in articulation as he develops his solo, I think that's something to listen for. I love the phrase ending he does at minute marker 317. He kind of uses two repeated notes instead of just one note. So a lot of players will play a line and they'll just end it on on one note. You know, I'll pick B flat, for instance. But a lot of early swing guys, they would do two B flats or, you know, two or three B flats uh, um, B flats. And sometimes they would be, you know, really next to each other or they would be kind of separated by half a beat. Um, so you get that at 317 um, and you can you just can hear the the style and the improvisations he's making right there. And there's really nice articulation at 319. He does a cool lip fall at the end of his solo that goes right into the clarinet solo. And so that's a cool transition from the trumpet into the clarinet. Yeah, and why don't you get started on the the clarinet? Because I think there's something you want to talk about that I I want to uh, want to hit on a little bit. So why don't you get us into to Barney's solo on this one? Well, we'll see. I just um, I really like how he starts starts off. It's kind of nice and easy, and then he gets busier as he goes along. He has some really nice lines at 4:05 to 4:15. It's really just absolutely killer. He has some nice hard hitting repeated ideas also that are copied behind him by cozy cole on the drums you can hear from 410 to 415 and so the um inter musical interactions from from the players is going on during the solo um and that is a tradition that that remains in jazz to this day but um this is just a prime example of what a rhythm say rhythm section player especially a drummer can do behind a soloist yeah, I love how Cozy Cole picks up on that rhythmic idea and gets into it with him. I think it's just really musical. But one thing I want to mention that you kind of uh, touched on was the nice lines. And you kind of hear some movement um, towards like the moving lines um, in Barney Biggard's solo here and some lines that are moving in not such a linear fashion, but maybe like moving around and more of what's going to influence like the transition into swing and bebop music so from you know the the runs 
into like some actual moving lines. And I think there's some cool stuff in there and you can hear that. And that's, what's going to start to influence guys like Charlie Parker to want to really use that movement and see how much they can move around the, the chord structure. So I think we get a, a little taste of that from, from Barney here. So I wanted to, wanted to touch on that. You're right. There's a lot of nice technique. Um, when we talk about building improvisational lines, you know, for instance, if you're going um, B, C, D, E on an instrument, you can um, reach that last note a lot of different ways. Instead of just going D to E, you can go F, D sharp, E, F, D, E before it. And that's just one example of what you can do. We kind of call those, um, uh, uh, I, there are a lot of people call them all sorts of stuff, but um, it's just kind of foundational bebop language, but it comes from a lot of the foundations of swing era improvisation too. So you're right that what Biggert is playing is kind of a lot of the foundation of what came after um, earlier on, you know, from, from the foundations that these guys laid in their recordings and in their music. Yeah. It's, you can tell the progression so where these guys are starting to use some different improvisational techniques and starting to explore some different ways to form their lines that really influenced the bebop guys to want to explore those techniques more. Yeah. Yeah. You, you encompass notes differently. You encapsulate phrases differently. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of things you can fit into a line. Um, if you get, if you talk about chromaticism and then you talk about a lot of different things with, with the foundations of bebop language and you get some of that here with Bigard. And then you get a trombone solo also from T-Garden. He also has some good lines. He has a nice slide rip upward at minute marker 432. And there's also a really cool diminished idea. He plays at 442. I was not expecting that where he plays a lick in one bar and then he does it a minor third up and it's actually um based on kind of the diminished scale or the diminished chord yeah so some more you know bebop starting to get into some of those techniques you know diminished scales and, and things like that um yeah so this is cool they end it with just another course of the collective improv which is kind of a stylistic approach to it and then back to you know an eight bar uh, cozy cold drum solo in the middle of the, the form kind of in a trading fashion but not like a trade necessarily just kind of takes up eight bars of the form and then they end it in a super similar way to back home in indiana on this one yeah you get that long vibrato held out by pops again and i love it i mean you could say it's a little predictable or you know we get it but i love it yeah so. and stylist it's <laughs> like the stylistic thing you know they're kind of sticking to the stylistic approach of, of the era. So let's move yep. on to the fourth track on the album, which is the tune entitled Stardust, um, which is going to yeah, heavily this one, feature Jack Teagarden. Max, tell us about it. You're right. It, it It's really a Teagarden feature on the record. The tune itself is one every jazz musician should know. It's a tune written by Hoagie Carmichael, and I actually have the same birthday as Hoagie Carmichael, November 22nd. Um, so that's what a day. A, I, <laughs> wow, big day. Um, 
if you don't know, Hoagie is one of the most successful Tin Pan Alley songwriters of the 1930s. He also wrote Georgia On My Mind, The Nearness of You, Skylark. Um, and he also personally knew Louis Armstrong. Um, Hoagie Carmichael learned the piano from his mother. And then he began writing tunes for musicians he knew, including Big Spiderbeck and Louis Armstrong. Went on to write several hundred songs. He was also in a lot of movies later on in his career, and he was eventually inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And his name is a little unique. Hoagie is short for Hoagland, and I believe his mom named him Hoagland um, after a circus troupe that had stayed in their house during or right before Hoagie Carmichael's birth. <laughs> so that's why his, his name is so unique. Um, with the name Hoagie. That is a really cool name. Uh, yeah, it's a unique story and kind of a, a fun tidbit. He definitely is very influential in songwriting. A lot of the songs you mentioned, I mean, Georgia on my mind is just one that's made most popular by probably Ray Charles, but is yep. on Oscar Peterson's night train and one of my favorite tracks on that album. So just some, and that tune is just so well, so incredibly composed. So just a really talented, songwriter but let's get into the the tune itself on this one one thing i want to talk about before i know you're going to want to get into jack t garden and his style i want to talk about earl hines and his style on this one and it's just so this is so this album we talked about is in 1951 so bop is is already around but one thing that earl hines does is he illustrates the pre-bop style and early jazz style. And one thing he does, he does it really well on this album and he influenced the guys that were to come so much. So I think you really hear that earlier jazz piano style come out. Um, his use of runs while comping behind the trombone solo. It's very hip to like swing or stride piano or Dixie La Dixieland slash traditional jazz versus, you know, you wouldn't a lot of newer guys are be, but once you get to bebop, you get, rhythmic accompaniment um or holding out sustaining chords and different colors but he's using runs and different fills and trills to accompany t garden on this one so one thing i wrote is think of fats waller and james johnson versus bud powell and barry harris you know so that's there's differences in the way that they would approach playing behind somebody and one thing that earl hines is the link between them because earl hines took what Fats Waller and James Johnson were doing and kind of started to incorporate it and and push it towards that that bebop style and so we hear him playing in more of the the earlier style here but he's one of the guys that that developed the style so well so one thing I talked about before was the the use of two-handed syncopation and yeah, it's just so he's so influential um, and he really ushered in some of the, the early beboppers like like we mentioned earlier uh, with Bird and even Dizzy Gillespie and his influence is just so far reaching. And I think at times he's a little bit underrated. A lot of guys, Art Tatum gets a lot of credit, but Earl Hines really influenced Art Tatum. So I think it's it's really important to understand where he falls in the lineage of jazz piano and how influential he was on, on the music. And as we were talking about before, Father Hines didn't pass away until the 1980s. So he had a huge span. Uh, he was basically alive during most of the, uh, most of any of the development in jazz that we can think of. He was pretty much um, playing through the entire, yes. he was young 
and got into stride and picked it up from guys like Fats Waller. But he played through that all the way through bebop, all the way through hard bop. And obviously his style is his style, but it also developed throughout the years. Yeah, it's incredible that he his life really spanned the development of jazz or what we know is, you know, the most important years in jazz. Yeah. And on this track stardust he interacts with what jack t garden is playing on the trombone so well his fills are like they're a part of the melody almost and speaking of the melody a lot of times players on stardust will add a lot of notes even guys like ben webster who have recorded this tune um did that so a lot of players will will add notes to the to the main melody when they're playing the head on the on stardust and so jack t garden does that quite quite a lot here and also with the song sometimes if you want you can play the verse and the chorus and later on a lot of cats just play the chorus but here they start with the verse and i really like the verse of this tune because it's got kind of falling thirds it's very i don't know musical very emotional um very moving and so i'm really really kind of excited (laughs) that they actually play the verse um, and, and they kind of start out with that into the chorus and you hear where the chorus starts because that's when they actually get a, um, a, a complete groove starting um, a four four time during the verse. It's kind of roboto. And usually that is how you do it. You kind of do that verse roboto and, and you move along at your own pace with it and you play around with the, the melody of the verse. Then you do the chorus, you know, four four straight ahead. And, and that's what they do here. Um, Jack T. Garden's sound is quite unique. It's a little lighter of a touch on the trombone than I would imagine. Um, it's not very, I mean, it, it, it drives pretty well, but it's not hard driving, um, dirty and loud. It's, it's more lighter, um, more, I think, mellower or just kind of velvety. It's kind of a velvet touch or tone on the trombone, and I really enjoy that. Um, and he adds so much to what he's doing constantly and they kind of just do one time through the form but you can hear all those little movements and notes that he's adding to the melody and and just everything he's doing is is so spot on and there's also a nice trombone cadenza at the very end and i love a ballad with a cadenza especially from a horn player especially from a sax player but any horn you know that <laughs> If that is on an album and it's executed well and very musically well done, that's going to be one of my favorites on the on the album. And they do that here, and I love it. Yeah, I think Jack D. Garden is featured so well. I think it was really important to, to have him featured, and everyone's featured on this album. That's one thing I'll talk about when we get into our overall thoughts is he's just, everyone gets featured, and this is such a good song for him to be featured on, and it's, it's the style of the tune, and like Max was saying, his tone is just very unique because you can think of the trombone, especially in early jazz, as being when you get to that hot jazz, it can be kind of like a a dirtier kind of sound or a very, you know, full, aggressive sound, and his sound's not like that. It's very, I love how you said the word velvety. It's just like, it, like you want to get wrapped up in it. it that's how it feels, yep. you know? You want to wear it as a blanket. So it's just, oh, it's so warm. It's so, so nice. Um I really love his tone. It's it's just nice to listen to. He's he's so awesome to listen to. And it's just it is important to note he is just the preeminent pre-bop trombone player and so he's he's the guy when it comes to trombone um 
in in this era. So I, I love it. And the the cadence is awesome. It's it's just really well done. And all of his lines are, are really good. He's got a lot of cool stuff and he's just really nice to listen to. Absolutely. Now the next tune they take a 180. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Maybe like a do, 540, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> they do something completely different. Um a very new song at the time of this recording called The Hucklebuck. If you don't know, The Hucklebuck was kind of a, a blues tune that had a dance to it. You know, we always think about the twist or um, a lot of people now are, are, are still making dance tunes and, and calling a, a type of dance a name. And then that's what they call the song. So that's what they did here with The Hucklebuck. And there's a lot to talk about with this, just the origins of this song. I um, I, I don't want to talk about everything, but it is kind of more of a pop tune that originally came out in 1949, so only two years before this album that we're t- discussing. And it was kind of an R&B hit originally from Paul Williams, who's kind of like a honking tenor player, kind of um, rock and roll precursor. And then later on, there were words added by Roy Alfred, who's just a Tin Pan Alley lyricist, well-known for his lyrics. But the song is credited to Andy Gibson, who was a trumpeter and composer. He's really well-known for arranging a lot of of tunes for bands and for recordings. But the main theme to the Hucklebuck musically matches Charlie Parker's melody on Now's the Time, the first eight bars of Now's the Time. And to me, I always thought that was reversed. I always thought Charlie Parker based his bebop tune on the Hucklebuck. But after researching this, I'm mistaken. Um, I guess Bird Bird's tune was recorded first, at least, and then and then the Hucklebuck came um, three or four years after that. Yeah, it's a very interesting origin story with how the song was created. It's very hip to the time, like you said, only two years before the the album came out. So it's not in the more traditional. This is basically a dance tune. Um, and it's cool. It's de- definitely fun and energetic. But yeah, it's like interesting. I would have thought the same thing, that the Charlie Parker tune was based off of this melody, but it's it's the other way around. Um, and-, and I don't know. Maybe One thing I want to say is, Maybe the Hucklebuck was written earlier, but never published under anybody or never recorded until 1949. I don't know, but um, it looks like I'm wrong because I always thought Burgess copped that lick from the Hucklebuck and then added a bebop lick the last four bars yeah. to end it. Um, but I guess it looks I'm wrong. like yeah, from what I've seen as well is that. They the Hucklebuck was written based off of his tune, which is which yep. is pretty interesting to take a bebop tune and make it a a dance tune. But um, the I want to talk about the dance a little bit. Uh, it was very popular at the time, and so it's a blues tune, blues form. Um, and the basic dance has been described as having a double point with the feet to the side on each side, four counts, then a lift and a twist of the leg, and then a small kick, then a shimmy. And a hip gyration. So back in the time, this was the hip <laughs> dance. And one thing I want to talk about is it's crazy to think that this is still happening in pop culture today. Like if you think about pop music and kids on TikTok doing these dances to music, this has been happening. Kids, this has been happening since the 1940s, even before. I mean, there's dance music way back. But it's just so it's so funny to think like how music, how far we've come in life and the world. But like 
how similar things are. Like people were doing this, like, oh, you you point your toes like this, then you do this shimmy, and then and kids are still doing it now. They're just posting it on on TikTok these days. Nothing changes but the names. So the name of the dance changes, the name of the platform changes. Instead of you know the record or on stage, now it's TikTok. Now it's an app. Now it's Instagram. So it's you're right. They've been doing the same thing for eighty years, <laughs> but nothing. You know, it just it's a different name. Um, so you're right. It it's um, it's an interesting connection with pop culture um, to see that you know the formula almost never really changes it's just what you call it and and how you tweak it a little bit and and it's always you know more relevant to the time as time progresses but you know they're they were doing in 1949 what they're doing now on tiktok yeah yeah so that's just that's what popped into my mind when i heard about it i was like man i was like it's crazy to think that something you know this is just people are the same as they were back then we're entertained in the same way and we like the same things so it's super cool. Um, I want to talk about the the tune a little bit. Um, Lewis comes in hot on this one on his solo, and man, he's really killing over over the the blues on this one. And he really gets into like some of the higher range of of the trumpet, which Lewis can be known for, and can be done over over the blues. He is one of the most foundational performers on the blues you can listen to, especially if you're a horn player, specifically trumpet or cornet. Um, how he treats the blues solo is really the should be the basis of 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 other things that came after it and other things you're doing on top of the blues. There should be a hint of what Louis Armstrong does on the blues in a great blues solo. Um, here he does a little more stretching. There's some higher notes. He showcases his great vibrato. I, and I want to mention there's some nice repeated notes at minute marker 157 that pops plays and it's a lesson um and there's a couple other instances on this album where i'll talk about the same thing but it's a lesson in that you should not be afraid to repeat notes as an improviser have some fun um play around with just one note um i i'm constantly bewildered and confused as to why you know i always get um hesitation from a beginning improviser i don't know what to play i don't know what i should do you know this guy i'm hearing plays a lot of notes and and i don't know what he's doing i can't do that and i gotta tell you you can do it just literally start with one note and at 157 you can hear how much you can do with just one note that's such a good point like just play one note and play it in a way that feels good Mm -hmm. and then just go from there then play two notes that's you can build like the most hip solo in that way. Just start with one note and play it in a way in a rhythm that feels good and feels hip and then mess around with that and maybe play it on the back of the beat or, you know, play around with the rhythm and then play around with a few notes in the rhythm. So, yeah, don't be afraid to to just really dig into to what you're feeling. And if it's you're not feeling a crazy run, you can you can be really hip using just one note. The phrase if somebody utters out loud the phrase i can't improvise i am sorry you are wrong you can just play around with one note do do you need somebody to tell you to brush your teeth in the morning or the order in which you do your morning routine no you naturally have things that you prefer to do over others or you 
do with what works in your schedule. You, not all of us have a secretary we can call and say, hey, can you tell me um, the order in which I should wake up, brush my teeth, get the paper, floss, um, uh, eat breakfast, um, and then go to work? No, you do that on your own. And you you learn, you know, what's best for you and, and what um, you personally uh, value and, and can pull from and you learn as you go. It's the same thing with improvising. Just start with the basics. You know, everybody has to get up in the morning out of bed. So all improvisers, when they begin, they're starting out with just one or two notes, just the basics, and then you build from there. Have some fun and, and try it because you can improvise. I think that's a, a really good point. One thing I want to say is you could tell any person, and especially people who like music, even if they have no musical experience, you could say, I'm going to like play the, a groove for you, right? And here's a note. And just play it however you want and however it feels good to you. And that person is going to... like there's going to be some level of ability to improvise just based on what they're feeling and how they're feeling the groove. I mean, some people are not very rhythmic or musical at all. So, but that's what, where it starts is just feeling that. And it, that's so important to the music is to be able to use how the feel that you have. And it, it can start with one note and you could tell anyone to just say, Hey, play this note and play it however you want, but just stick to that note and kind of try to do fun things with it. And they'll give you something. They're going to give you something that's unique to them. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, let's move on to the trombone solo that comes next. I, I, I think we've made our point. There's a lot of great stuff in Pops' solo, and there's some cool stuff in the trombone solo, and you can hear some nice phrasing. Um, also, I don't know. Pops took a two-chorus solo, and I think the trombone player, I think Jack Teagarden was also supposed to only do two choruses, but he ends up doing three choruses almost. Because you can hear at the beginning of that third chorus in the blues form that Barney Biggard comes in with a like kind of a screaming high note, and he it's kind of like he's coming in hot for a solo, but Jack Teagarden keeps going, and, and so then they, they all just start playing. Yeah, and so to to deal with that, they just collectively improvise on that third chorus, which I think Jack Teagarden wanted another chorus and. The clarinet was supposed to do it and have two choruses, and then Velma comes back in with the vocal. But here they just kind of collectively improvise um, for that chorus. And um, then they get on the head out, and Velma comes back in with the vocal melody. Yeah, and I think uh, one thing that's interesting to note, one thing that I picked up on while listening to it, is while Jack Teagarden's playing his solo, you can hear Velma and Lewis in the background during this. And you can hear the crowd starts to randomly clap during like the middle of Jack's solo. And it doesn't have really anything to do with the way he's playing. And I think it's safe to assume, in my opinion, that they were doing the Hucklebuck themselves. That's what they were doing is they were doing the Hucklebuck while Jack was, was playing. So because you kind of hear him kind of getting at it and like having fun and kind of and then you hear the crowd just start to randomly clap. And I was like, oh, there! I think the Hucklebuck is going on. I think you're right. It's another moment, um, another teachable moment where the entertainment factor, you know, has value and, and is a part of, of this music, at least the way they're doing it here. And um, I also love Velma. Her, her vocals on this track, you know, they just complement everything that's going on. The blues is obviously in her bones as well as pops, as well as all the players on the album. Um, so I'm glad that they actually 
did the Hucklebuck, even though it's a little different. And then um, after that, they go back to the jazz tradition, tradition, excuse me, and they do a tune called Honeysuckle Rose, which was originally written by Fats Waller. We've been mentioning him a couple of times. Piano player, composer. He was also an organist, a violinist, a singer. And he's another guy that was an all-around entertainer. If you see clips of him um, from the early days when he's playing, he has a lot of great facial gestures when he's playing. He's just an all-around. He's entertaining while playing tremendous music at the same time. He was also the first black American songwriter to write a full-length Broadway musical that was geared for a white audience. That one was called Early to Bed. And the um, linguist and essayist and somebody I personally like um, to listen to and read from, his name is John McWhorter. Anyway, John McWhorter also knows music and, and knows jazz, and he has a great essay about Fats Waller's musical Early to Bed. Um, where he talks about how unique it was to have a, a black American songwriter write a full-length musical at that time for a white audience, and it was very successful. And unfortunately, while that um, musical was on Broadway, Fats Waller passed away, and he actually passed away in Kansas City, Missouri, um, at the age of 39 due to pneumonia. I think he was on a train and it stopped in KC. He was sick. He had to get off. And he unfortunately passed away while his hit musical was, was being performed. And it's a shame because I, I just always wonder what would happen to this music as if Fats Waller had not died so soon. Yeah, it is. It definitely is tragic that he died so, so young. Some of his tunes are some like Ain't Misbehaving is one of my favorite jazz standards of all time. I just love the composition of that tune. I wish that we had gotten to get more tunes like that from, from his songbook. Um, but yeah, Fats Waller, just so influential in the music. And when we talk, I was talking earlier about stride piano and that's the style which Fats Waller really was the father of was, was the stride style and taking the ragtime and developing it into a, a newer style of, you know, jazz early jazz music um and so i think earl hines is just also a master of this style and learned from guys like like fats waller and james johnson so well and he earl hines is doing a great job of of showing the style and so what gives stride its feel is the left hand and the left what the left hand is doing so in stride piano the left hand is going to hit on the bass typically with the pinky and then it's going to move up and play a chord so you'll get bass chord and that's and that's what why it's called stride is the left hand is literally you can see when someone's playing the left hand is striding up from the bass to the chord bass to the chord um so yeah and i just think earl hines does a great job of of demonstrating the Fats Waller stride style of piano with the the left hand stride and then the right hand, you get kind of more of that, what was similar to the ragtime in the the runs, the fills, the trills. Um, and so this this style of, of stride piano is really what influenced, like we said earlier, really, really influenced some of the later cats. Um, so I want to get into 
his uh, solo a little bit. The There's a killer double time section in the solo, and they kind of break away from the stride feel, and they go into in a more upbeat swing feel instead. And the style in which Earl is playing starts to play is almost completely different. He's broken away from stride piano and he's getting into swing. So you literally can hear the, like Max and I were saying, the development of jazz piano, you could hear it here. And so from that, cause that's the next step is going to be the swing era. And so he gets into the swing style. There's more syncopation on the left hand and it's not striding, but instead it's using comping and left hand syncopation with what he's doing on his right hand. And that's going to be indicative of the swing era and into bebop as well. Um, and so now his right hand, instead of playing more, of the runs like we were talking about he's starting to play lines and so he's using kind of linear movement and not necessarily like max was saying um when you go one two three four five up a scale and do a run or whatever scale you're playing whatever the tones in the scale are he's starting to kind of move the lines maybe going you know like one sharp four down to four up to you know seven to back to one you know starting to use lines um and so it's just cool to hear him take take this break in the song in a song that is a stride piano song and just go into the swing era and it's this is like literally you can hear the influence on guys like Errol Garner and Oscar Peterson in this song and the way that they play the piano. It's 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 coming from from this and Art Tatum as well. I want to mention Art Tatum because Oscar doesn't say he's influenced a lot by Earl Hines, but he does say he's influenced by Art Tatum. And R. Tatum was most definitely influenced by Earl Hines. So in a way, Oscar, you know, in a definite way, is influenced by the playing of of Earl Father Hines. That's my my lecture on this tune and why it's so important. <laughs> Max, tell me what you think about about all that. Everything you said is is pretty spot on. Um, I just wanted to note I love what Cozy Cole is doing on the drums um, when that cool double time groove tempo feel hits um that is so it, hip that section is so hip it is um i don't is it on the tom or the snare it kind of sounds like i don't know like a like a fast dixieland beat but also but it's also just swinging yeah um and it's kind of i don't know maybe it's a little calypso in there too i don't know a little Latin influence. I don't know exactly what Cozy Cole is doing, but whatever he's doing right there, it matches so well, and it just brings out what Father Hines is doing on the piano. And again, it's like the way Father Hines complimented um, Jack Teagarden on this tune Stardust. I think Cozy Cole is doing that to Father Hines here, and it's just really contributing overall in a way that goes beyond just playing the drums on a gig. Um, so I think that's important to note. Also, at 242, the rhythm section drops out, and it's just piano, and there's great upward-sweeping motion from Father Hines, 303 to 309. And those lines there, they just, right after another, are just so killer. Um, you think he can't give you more, and, and then he does. Then the band comes back in at 321 with that slower starting tempo, and then there's a solo piano cadenza, and I love the drawn-out sustained note that Heinz plays at 340 to 336, or sorry, 346. And then there's a final two notes to end it. The timing of that is just so incredible. You can feel that he has the audience, you know, towards the front of their seat 
waiting for the song to end. They don't know what's going to happen. And that six seconds is probably the longest six seconds I've ever heard before. <laughs> yeah, I this song is just so well performed and Earl Hines just so killer. And yeah, they break into um, a piano cadenza like Max is talking about. And he brings us back to that. That runs and fills back from the, you know, more of the swing style into, you know, more of the stride piano style. And then when he brings us back into the melody, this is it's he does it so well when he brings the tune back into the melody. You can hear someone in the crowd, they start to clap, and someone in the crowd goes, Oh <laughs> whenever yep. he brings us back into the melody. They they were hip to what they were like, okay, that that's that's hip. So that it, oh man, I did the same thing when I was listening to it too. A little little awe. But yeah, yeah I just, there's yeah, there's moments of that where you can tell that the audience knows what's going on and what musically they're doing. Um, and they're so receptive and, and welcoming. And it's just a very positive overall effect um, that that I'm getting from, from this recording, both from the players and the audience. And nowadays, it's sometimes really hard to get that, you know, when you're doing this kind of music. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's, it seems like they're the audience is very in tune and they're very they're listening, you know, and it can be hard to get audiences that are fully receptive and listening like that. I, last thing I want to say on this one is I just love the fact that they chose to this is how they feature Earl Hines on this Fats Waller tune. It's just incredible. It's musically, stylistically such a great choice, which is this whole album. Just yeah. great choices as to what to include, what to play, and how to feature different people on different songs. Um, just and re really awesome. Absolutely. And as a musician, especially jazz musician, if you don't know either Honeysuckle Rose or Ain't Misbehavin' or both, you really should. Um, it's a little easier to memorize Honeysuckle Rose, and I'll call that on, on gigs every once in a while, too. You know, AABA form, it's, it's just great foundationally. But you really should know Honeysuckle. You know who does know Honeysuckle Rose? I'll give you one guess. Who's that? Oscar Peterson. <laughs> he oh, played well, it duh. all the time. <laughs> if you yeah, go, go on Spotify and look up Oscar Peterson, Honeysuckle Rose, I promise you there are probably 40 or 50 recordings of him. Play. He played it like with so many different people. and so many. It's just, it's one of, you can tell it's one of Oscar's favorite tunes to play. Yep. And then the next tune they do on the album here. They do Just You, Just Me, which is a Barney Biggard feature. So you got, you know, you got a tune featuring the piano player with Honeysuckle Rose. You got a tune featuring the trombonist with Stardust. And here they give Barney Biggard a really big feature with Just You, Just Me. Um, if you don't know, Just You, Just Me is a song from a 1929 musical film called Marianne. And... The song was written by a Broadway composer, Jesse Greer, who's kind of known for his uh, hit musical Shady Lady in 1933 when it hit the hit the stage. He also wrote over 100 songs, including the song Kitty from Kansas City and Baby Blue Eyes. So he's a little, I don't know what the word is, hokey or <laughs> comical, you know, with a lot of his um, original compositions. But you'll see... You'll see some Jesse Greer tunes covered um, throughout this music. Just You, Just Me is an AABA form. And like I said, it's a Biggard feature. So we get so much from Barney Biggard on this track. 
He has a really nice sound, some nice mid-register, and you hear a little more low-end here, basically because most of the track, if not all the track, he's the only horn player. So he can come out a little bit more and not have to battle the large brass sounds of trumpet and trombone against him. So we get a little more of that low register on this. And his opening line at uh, the 54 second to the 56 second mark when he's going into the solo is just really boss. I mean, he, he plays a held out note that's followed by more moving triplets and 16th notes down the instrument, ending on a middle note somewhere in the middle of what he just played. So he does that quite a few times in the solo and in general. And just the way he's moving on the instrument is kind of, not only is it um, artistic, but it's it's really hard to execute some of the rhythms that he's doing and some of the nuances he's adding to what he's playing on the clarinet. Uh, he does that again at 113 to 116. And then, then he does a more rhythmic idea that he also did in Way Down Yonder at uh, minute marker 139 where earlier on it was the thing that Cozy Cole was caught, you know, um, reflecting behind him. So he does that again here in this solo. He does that kind of chromatic up and down lick that we hear all the time from Cats. We talked about it on the Dexter Gordon album. Um, he does that somewhere between 139 and 152. And I love that idea he plays at 152. He also has a nice really high note at 209. And then collective improv occurs so the trumpet and trombone do come back into the into the lineup and start playing and pops kind of shines right there where where all the horns are in and then bigger takes it away again at 251 and it's just him and drums so everybody backs out including piano and um and bass and it's just clarinet and drums and it's a really nice open section where barney biggard can get a little more gritty and a little more um into what he's playing yeah barney is really really killing on this one i want to talk a little bit about his first solo and then i'll let you get into to that part because uh i think that's something that uh max is going to want to talk about um he's just really killing he has some really cool ideas he'll like belt out at like 113 and that belt leads like right into a triplet run which is really hip and then he does he uses like a rhythmic idea right after it and he follows that by a run of triplets so it's just really cool how he he messes with the rhythms and uses different techniques and different rhythms and runs and things so yeah, and then he goes back to that belt and triplets at 134, and then like Max is talking about the the chromatic up and down lick, um, like we hear Bop guys start to use a lot of chromaticism, and I just think this is some of the improvisational techniques like we were talking about that are the building blocks of the music, and it's what was starting to influence guys who are really getting into the improvisational style of jazz music and later on guys, you know, bebop players. So just you hear this and you, you this is just super influential in the, the technique of, of improvisation. And yeah, I, yeah, the, the section where they go to just clarinet and drums for a while is awesome. And when I was listening to it, I was thinking in my head, I was like, this is this is Max must be in heaven right now. This is just Max's 
kind of jam. Like, so yeah. I want to let you talk about that. But I, as I was listening about to it, I was like, this is like, this might make Max's top song just because of this. This is like just Max to a T. This is his favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I, uh, I like you bringing that up because it is something I would do. And it's something you and I have done, I think. Oh yeah, playing. for sure. <laughs> um, just the idea of of opening up a section and having a horn and drum set to me is so uh, appealing. You and I have done that with both Travis Slaughter and Zach Raybill, two drummers we've used when playing on the tune Take Five, and we kind of go avant garde with it. So that's one you know one way to go. Here they don't go avant garde, but they they open it up, and Barney Biggard just fools around with his instrument and he's having fun it's a little more i would say balls to the wall here um right at the start of the open section where he gets more gritty and then he moves down the horn a little bit there's a cool staircase downward idea at 342 to 346 and either that moment or just after that moment is also an area where you can hear biggard repeat ideas so here it's another lesson you should not be afraid to repeat notes or repeat improvisatory ideas and build from them. Um, it's, it's just a cool technique you can do as an improviser. Then we do get a clarinet cadenza and you know me, I love horn cadenzas <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll do them. So you better watch out. My notes this, on this says Barney takes a Mac, a max esque cadenza on this one. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, it, 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 he does do a clarinet cadenza that seems to be almost ending the tune. And then the audience cheers, but Barney Biggard keeps going. And that's also something I would want to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. It just screamed Max. It's so cool because like we were talking about with the dances, it's just like the stuff that we're doing guys were doing it you know like it, there's such a history of it and to hear the guys who really fathered that like that's something that is you know that improv and that cadenza in that way that's like new to music in in America and that's something that you know we're hearing the roots of it and now Max you know however 70 80 years later is still doing that you know like we're still and it's still hip it's still really fun um, so I think that's just a really cool thing to, to note. Absolutely. Um, and then as, as you know, he tricked the audience and he keeps going, we get some thundering drumming from cozy Cole. And then there starts to be some clarinet and drum set interaction. Um, there's sort of a back and forth between the clarinet and the drums. And there's some really great sounds being used from both players biggard makes some horse noises right at 532 <laughs> and he messes around with a lot of siren sounds and a lot of bending and 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 lip falls and going up and excuse me going up and down just on one note and all the different um kind of textures you can get from just the uh the sound of the instrument he plays around with that a lot here and then the bass chimes in with the bow as well, making playful sounds up and down. The clarinet comes back in, and there's, again, some cool siren noises. And somehow, Biggard and Cole end it together. And that moment where they end the song together, you know, with Biggard just improvising freely on his own, and then he cues, I guess, Cozy Cole on the drum set. Somehow, they end the last note together, and that is just phenomenal playing. Yeah, I just love I, the note that I have. I just love this. I just love 
this section. I love how they stretch it out. And it just shows us like the stretch has been with us since the beginning of time in jazz. And it's just such an expression of self. You know, these guys are just playing whatever feels good and they're stretching it out and they're just they're kind of going out with it. And it's it's super awesome. And uh, and Barney kills it. And Cozy Cole is right on it, you know, always answering and right with him and just does a great job of, of, of accompanying him in, in this in this time. But let's get on to the the eighth track on the album, um, which is entitled My Monday Date, which was written by Earl Hines. Yeah, it's cool to get a Father Hines original. Um, it's an AABA form. It's a, it's a cool original tune. It goes to the four on the bridge, and then there's kind of a two-five um, with the dominant seventh chord. So usually when we think of a two-five, the two is a minor seventh, the five being dominant, but here the two is a dominant seventh chord. So it's cool to note you can also do that harmonically. There's a 16-bar intro led by the keys, some collective horns in with the head under pops, and then there's a, a piano solo, and he has some really cool ideas. It's really swinging. He has a nice use of the left hand right around 207. And then Pops comes in with the vocal and singing the melody after the piano solo. Yeah, I think that's pretty hip how they, uh, a lot of, they'll do this on this album sometimes. They'll let someone solo and then they'll sing the melody, which is pretty cool. Um, I think you're, you're definitely starting to hear the move towards uh, like the swing or more traditional elements in jazz or like, you know, newer elements in jazz, the use of the AAB form, the four on the bridge and the two five movement. You're getting a lot of that, which has become the foundation of the music itself. So we're getting that in this song and yeah, it's just super swinging on this one. And Earl Hines is, is just really swinging. So it's, it's, it's really nice to, to get that. It's a different, a little bit different than some of the other stuff, a little bit more, into that swing era stuff on on this one yeah and then when pops is singing you know you can hear right away his iconic sort of raspy voice his vibrato his vocal inflections they remind me of his of some of what he does when he's playing the trumpet it's very kind of bendy um and he does that both when he's singing and playing the instrument we also get a trombone solo a little more slide technique i think and then we get a, a bass solo and the bass player Arvel Shaw, he starts out with a song quote, and it took me forever to think about it, but he, he is um, playing the mel- the beginning melody to the tune Chicago, that Toddlin' Town, mm. right at the 344 mark. Um, so, you know, the song quotes, you got to try and get them when you can and, and hear them and recognize them, but there's always so many, but I like how the bass starts his solo. There's also some really nice lines that he's playing. And I think you can hear him breathing in between his improvisatory phrases that he's playing on the bass. And it proves that you don't only have to do this if you're a horn player. You know, on horn, we have to breathe in between phrases that we're playing. But um, what did you notice? Did you hear that? Yeah, I noticed the same thing. And I think... It's, you can't really hear him if he's singing what he's playing, but this is a very common technique. I think he might be mouthing at least what he's playing, at least the rhythm or maybe mouthing kind of the notes as well, which is important because you want, even as a rhythm section member, as a pianist, as a bassist, when you're soloing, you want phrasing. And it's easy, not easy, but it like as a saxophone player, you have to breathe. 
right? But as a piano yep. player, I could sit there and do a run up and down the piano till my hand falls off. As a bass player, you could pluck at the bass until your hand falls off. I think it's awesome that he's, and this is a really common technique and one that you should definitely use is singing your solos. And if you're transcribing a solo, sing it while you're playing it. And it'll, you know, you're going to have to breathe while you're singing as well. So I think, I think that's what he's doing, doing is he's mouthing his solo. And so he's breathing and when he's breathing, you can hear him breathing because he's not playing anything on the bass because it's phrased really well. Yeah. And I think it's um, a good provable point. You know, you want your solos to, to breathe well or to be phrased well. And, um, you know, no matter the instrument you want, you want um, great phrasing. And it proves that when you are improvising on an instrument, you want to kind of pull from your whole body. So it's not like when I play the saxophone, it's it's me and then the saxophone in addition to me. I want to make the saxophone a third limb, like it's a part of me. Same with um, any player usually. And so here, the bass player, obviously, you know, that upright bass, it's a part of his own body, the way he's playing the instrument and going through his solos and, and everything he does. It's, it's full body the way we want to approach what we're doing on an instrument. Um, so that proves it right there. And then later on, we get a nice trumpet solo. Chromatic movement in here, it sounds like right at 431. And again, some nice repeating ideas from, from Pops here. There's a cool repeating trill idea from 448 to 452. And I also really enjoy the fast vibrato that Lewis does when he's playing. Then after that, there's a clarinet solo. And here we actually get some backgrounds from the brass during that first A section. And later on, I love what he plays right at 538. It's a cool kind of extended trill technique that we can do where we're moving fingers in a different position than going from one note to another. We're adding kind of fingers to a, to a note we're on and then just kind of trilling up and down. So he does that right at 538. And then Pops comes back in with everyone. And um, they do something that, you know, we still see as, as cool to do today, which is the drum set takes a solo during the bridge on the form of the tune. And then the horn, um, the horns play the last A. And here Armstrong kind of sticks out to me. Um, he plays more of the melody than he would on some of the earlier tracks when he's playing the head. And then there's a long vibrato on the last note to end it. Yeah. One thing that um, I wanted to point out is Arvel Shaw um, after his solo. One thing that I think is really cool is Lewis starts to solo, but Arvel doesn't come back in with the walking baseline until like three and a half bars into Lewis's solo. And it's just You're really, right. really hip. And it like, once he comes in with that baseline, it just really settles in nicely. It's just very musical touch. Um, I really like that one, but yeah, it's cool to do the, the melody for the first two A's and then the drum break over the bridge, very hip and a cool way to end it. And a very kind of typical ending with the, uh, the vibrato note to end as well. Kind of the style that we've been getting on the rest of the album, but let's get into the, uh, the, the ninth track on the album, the pen ultimate track. You can depend on me, which is a tune um, written by a few guys, but Earl Hines is included in that. Max, why don't you tell us a, just a little bit about this one? 
Yeah, this is one you may hear people calling the bandstand today. Um, it's kind of really well associated with the Count Basie Orchestra. Um, and there's a nice shout chorus on, on their version when they do You Can Depend On Me. Um, this song, you're right, written by a few different people, including Father Hines and Charles Carpenter. And Charles Carpenter was a songwriter really kind of in the 30s and 40s. Um, it's a really cool tune because there's a half-step motion in the fourth bar of the form where you go A minor 7, then you go down a half-step to the A-flat diminished 7. So um, there's a lot of tunes that have a similar form and, and use chords in, in, a, in the same way as this one. But right there, that's what makes this tune different, is that half-step movement, minor 7 into a diminished 7 chord. And it's, it's really cool to, to hear for that and to outline that when you're improvising on You Can Depend On Me. Yeah, for sure. I love the another thing to point out about the composition is it's just built around minor two five ones. Um and it's to the into the one on the A section and then into the four on the bridge. So that's this tune is just built around the, the two five one, which is really nice and it's really easy to listen to. Like two five ones sound really nice and they're and they're like fun to play over and easy to play over and so i think that gives this song just a lot of listenability um i really like the tempo on this song it's like relaxed like max said but it's not it's not slow it's right around 86 beats per minute so it's relaxed but it's not quite like at a ballad tempo it's not that slow and i just yeah i love the collective melody on this it's really hip and then what really sticks out to me is uh lewis's vocals really shine on this one and we get the very iconic Louis Armstrong singing style so yeah I just I, I love that we're getting just a Louis Armstrong singing tune on this one that's really what it's all about on this one yeah and also you can hear that dynamically on on you can depend on me on this track everybody kind of comes down it's kind of like a lower dynamic mm. um under pops and really the whole song is is kind of softer or more relaxed like you know like we wrote down and and it just um kind of flows really nicely it's not it's not overdone it's not um played really fast sometimes when cats cover the song it's played kind of much faster than they're doing here but i really enjoy this tempo and just everything is is just really easy going on this track um, and there's short solos. Heinz does like a, a four bar solo and then the horns come back in for the two A sections and then they slow down the last four bars and then there's like a longer note to a final chord. So there's a lot going on here without a lot going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's pretty simple, but it's like, it's very musical and this one just is like really nice and it's really easy to listen to. That's kind of the the thing I got. We said relaxed. And the thing that came to my mind is like, this is a song that's like really worth throwing on to like a Sunday morning playlist if you've got one. And it's just super relaxing. It's like the th kind of thing you want to wake up on a Sunday morning. You don't have much to do and you just throw this on a, on a playlist. It's, it's a, it's a great tune and a Louis Armstrong classic. So written by Earl Hines. So I, I really enjoy this one. But let's get into the uh, the final tune on on the album, Max. That's a plenty. Yeah, this one, that's a plenty, is a ragtime standard. So we're going way back in the history. This is probably the oldest tune we've covered um, on the podcast. 
It's from the year 1914, originally from Lou Pollock, who was a song composer in the late in mid to late teens, 20s, and 1930s. He was a singer and a piano player on vaudeville, and lyrics were added later. And over time in that early jazz history, it became a sort of st- jazz standard. We refer to it as a trad jazz standard or a Dixieland standard. And I also love how Pops introduces this one. He says it's a good old good one, <laughs> which it really is. But, you know, I've, I've heard um, a lot of people refer to, you know, kind of really classic songs like this in a number of different ways. But if you just say it's a good old good one, I think that says it all. And Pops does that really well. You know, he's a showman. So he can he can do that. And the way he does it, it also sounds cool when he's introducing it. Um, and it is a super, um, super cool track. What were you thinking? Yeah, I, I think this one just, it's really cool that they take us, this is literally the roots of jazz music. Ragtime is basically is, the earliest form of, of what's going to turn into jazz music. And I think it's important that we mention the name Scott Joplin as well, who is the father of ragtime and the inventor of ragtime. Um, so things like Tiger Rag, uh, you know, tunes like that that he wrote. So I think this is cool that they chose. This is like we've kind of journeyed around traditional jazz slash Dixieland swing even in the more modern with the Hucklebuck and some Earl Hines originals but now for the last tune they're just taking us all the way back to the ragtime feel so I think that's uh it's really cool that that they chose to to include this one in there and it's important it's to include it in in this album and I think it's good to say that there's a lot of different ways to refer to the same thing so you know when we're talking about trad jazz hot jazz, early jazz, or sometimes we say Dixieland jazz. We're talking about, you know, music from the, the teens, early 20s, um, and in the little mid to late 20s as well. And then later on in the 50s, there was kind of a resurgence, and this record is one example of that, where cats were um, bringing that classic early jazz back into the forefront with their performances and their recording. There was a band I think called the Dukes of Dixieland um, from the fifties that did that. And it's a troubled word a little bit because it often refers to the South. And we a lot of times think of it as kind of the old South where, you know, they, they were using um, things like the Confederate flag and there's the history of slavery and the oppression of, of black Americans in the old South. And so a lot of times we don't typically like to use the term Dixieland as much nowadays, but generally we're, we're, we're doing that when we say it as just a, one of the ways to refer to what I would call trad jazz. And it's just a really common term, musical term that refers to those two things jazz from the teens and early to mid 20s and the resurgence of of this style in the 50s yeah and i just just i want to give everyone kind of a really quick timeline since we've kind of talked about everything let's kind of put everything in chronological order so we're at the very beginning here with ragtime which is going to be in the very early 1900s like starting you know around 1900 and into the 19 teens and then we're going to get into the style of stride piano like we talked about 
um, and the stride piano and ragtime um, overlap, but stride comes after ragtime. It's formed from ragtime. And then, like Max was talking about, trad jazz um, is another derivation of ragtime and stride piano. And so you get this, what Max is talking about, traditional jazz, hot jazz, Dixieland jazz, which is in New Orleans. And so then the music, as we talked about, a lot of these players moves from New Orleans to Chicago, and we start to get the invention of swing music from traditional jazz in the 20s, the mid-20s, probably around 23, and then into the 30s, and then the and then that's forming the swing era and then in the 30s is when we get the introduction of some of the bebop players such as charlie parker and yeah, the, Monk, all of those guys yeah the late 30s um swing players like coleman hawkins and ben webster especially in their soloing was alluding to what would come soon after mm. in the in the mid 40s where bebop kind of really took over um you know, early to mid forties, we, we really settled into what we call bebop, but a lot of the foundations of that came from some of the things that the swing era players were doing, especially a guy to note is Don bias, the mm -hmm. great sax mm -hmm. player who Charlie Parker knew and, and, you know, was around quite a bit. And so all these guys interacted so much that of course they fed into each other and were learning things and, and adding to what came before them. Um, so, yeah, so you're right. It's, it's a good thing to talk about the timeline. Um, and then with this tune in particular, that's a plenty. You know, we can think about it as originally a ragtime standard, but kind of became an early jazz standard. Mm -hmm. It's a fast tempo that they're doing, which is usually how you do it. Um, and they're doing a 32-bar form, so kind of two 16-bar sections. There's a 16-bar trombone solo. Um and then we also get some nice trumpet playing here. It's very lively. And Pops kind of shows his really big sound here. Some nice long vibrato note notes mid-solo at um, 108 to 114. And he has a nice, nice kind of rising siren sound to end his solo. And then we get into the Earl Hines solo, which is all over the piano. But it's short. This whole track is is three minutes. So they're kind of just going through everybody really, really quickly. Yeah, this feels like almost kind of like a yeah, like a reprise or like they're yeah, they're kind of giving everyone some on the way out. They're using this old ragtime standard to kind of just let everyone say goodbye to the you know, to the to the album and yeah, so the show, the solos, everyone gets some, but they're short. Lots of cool stuff going on. Um, Pops is killing. Love is vibrato, and then the syncopation from Heinz, which we've talked about. That's his forte. But yeah, I, I, I just I think this is a really good way to to end the album. We go back to the very roots, and we kind of feature everyone a little bit on the way out. Yeah, the bass gets a solo. He also takes a couple of ideas from from Louis Armstrong solo. I think he's kind of pulling from Pops just played. And then trombone does 16 bars. Um, so there was a trombone solo already, but it's here kind of used as a bookend. Then there's a drummer, uh, excuse me, a drum solo, which he only has eight bars. So we get a little cozy coal. Um, and if you notice, he's doing all stuff on the snare and the toms. Um, he's not 
you know, using his cymbals at all during his solo, which is also kind of an early jazz drumming technique. Mm -hmm. When you're featured or soloing, you're going to pull from the toms and the 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 um, snare drum and the bass drum usually only um, in that style. Yeah, and some of the early guys, if you think yep. about Dixieland and Ragtime, they were only playing a kick drum and a snare. So that's right. That's yeah. You know, that's where that might that style might come from. Yeah, they didn't have as full of a kit as cats do today or even by, you know, the late 30s, early 40s. It wasn't even as full as, as it was then. So you're right. It was a limited kit. And so cats that grew up with that that sound and approach, when they soloed, they pulled a lot from, from a, a limited drum set. Um, then there's also a cool call and response at the end of this track between the brass and the clarinet. It's very high-energy very appealing, very rhythmic. Then there's a final long note to end it, but it's not quite as long as the previous ones were um, on the earlier tracks, but this that's a plenty. Um, it's, it's a cool short version, and it features everybody just a little bit. Yeah, um, so that's going to wrap up the all the tracks on the album. There are 10 tracks. We've gone through all of them. Um, lots of different stuff. So let's get into our top threes and our not so hot tracks for the album. Max, why don't you go first and give us uh, your quick rundown of your your top three and not so hot? Yes, my number one is Honeysuckle Rose, which was the Father Hines feature. Number two, Just You, Just Me, the Barney Biggard feature. I love what they're doing on that open section. Um, you're right. It, it is something that has influenced me and it's something I'll kind of always really like to do um, on a gig, you know, or at least think about it. You don't do it every gig, but, um, you know, it just... Well, we some do. Of the, <laughs> maybe we do. It's just some of the musical um, things that, that both Barney Biggard and especially Cozy Cole are doing on that track are just super hip to me. So that's my number two. Number three is the trombone feature of Stardust. I just love how... Father Hines is complimenting everything that's going on and their interactions and the, the trombone sound is, is really neat to listen to. I do want to give an honorable mention to the first track on the album, Back Home Again in Indiana. I didn't use it because there were just so many other good ones to, to pull from as things that I would want to use for my top three where they feature those particular players a lot. But Back Home Again in Indiana is probably the best overall representation of everything that they are doing and everything that they're pulling from. It's really well executed. I see why they want it to be the first track on the record. The Not So Hot for me is That's a Plenty, which was the last track on the record that we talked about, only because I could have done with a little more, you know, open it up a little bit, um, I mean, I see what they're doing by just having limited features from everybody. But I feel like they could have done more. And in general, it was really hard to find a not-so-hot on this album because there's something to learn from and something to listen to on every track. Yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment that it was so hard for me to pick a top three and a not-so-hot. And like what Max was saying with That's a Plenty is he's saying... 
you know, he wants some more. But if you're thinking about the style and what we talked about earlier is these ragtime tunes were typically short and trying to fit them on to 78s. Like, that's why they did that. So it makes sense why they do that. But, you know, we have to pick one for the not so hot. And for me, it was incredibly hard. But I'll give you my top three first. I also had Honeysuckle Rose. I just think it's hard to deny Earl Hines and his brilliance on that tune it's just it's it's an awesome tune as well so i honeysuckle rose is my number one as well and then i'm gonna go in a different direction than max on my my uh, other two i have back home again in indiana and i just think for the reason max said is it encompasses everything that this album is about so well it's a great tune it's really catchy i like the kind of um the frontline feel to it with the melody and, and everything that goes on. So I, I really enjoy that tune. And number three was really hard, but I kind of, I felt like it was important to, to list this one in our top three. Um, so I picked it as my third and I picked, you can depend on me, which is the one that really features uh, Lewis's singing. And it's just such a great song. It's so nice to listen to. It's just, it's well done and it's simple. It's nothing crazy. The two five ones, it's really nicely written. So I, I felt like it was important to put it in one of our top threes. It could have gone any other way. I could have put any song in my top three from this, honestly. And then, like I said, it was extremely hard to pick the Not So Hot. I went through the whole album and I listened and I was literally saying, no, I can't do that to the song. No, I can't do that to the song. And then I got to the Hucklebuck and I had a slight hesitation as if maybe I could. And I was like, I guess that's my not so hot because literally every other song I was like, I cannot, I can't do this to this song. So the Hucklebuck, it's fantastic. And I, I love it. But for some reason, it was just the one in my mind. That I was like, I can make this my not so hot and I can sleep tonight, which I really needed to get some sleep because it was like 4 a.m. when I was trying to finish this up. So, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, yeah, that's that's my my top three of my not so hot and my reasonings. Um, so let's get into our overall album thoughts and our, our ratings uh i'll go ahead and go first my thoughts um are this album is a journey through the history books and the, the early foundations of jazz music like we've said so many times it does a great job of show, showcasing many of the early styles of jazz music from ragtime to dixieland into the swing era um just all of the the early styles of jazz from 1900 to 1935 and it's just it's such a treat listening to Earl Hines and it's extremely evident his influence on the music and most of all jazz pianists that came after and I think this entire cast they were just super transformative in the genre and one thing that I really like is that Lewis allows everyone to shine and be the quote-unquote all-star that they truly are i mean that's the name of the band and that's what they all are they're all-stars they're legends of jazz music and so yeah i love how each one of them is featured on tracks throughout the album and so yeah i guess um this album overall it's just fun it's easy to listen to and it's essential in understanding jazz music as as a genre and my only setback on this album, which is like the smallest uh, critique, is that there are limitations to recording, live recording in a venue like this in 1951. And so there's some quality things, especially in the first track back home in Indiana. You can tell that they're kind of getting the sound figured out. 
And so if this were recorded on today's technology, it's like, oh my God, how incredible it would sound. So that's my like one little drawback is like, oh, I wish maybe at times that was a little more clear and the sound was better, but that's just the technology limitation. So um, I overall, I think it's safe to say that jazz might not have evolved in the same way without some of these musicians and their impact on the music. So go get yourself a little jazz education and check out this live jazz history book performance. It's really, really incredible. And so my overall score is going to be 8.4 out of 10 on this one. Some great points you made. I would also say, you know, this is a great representation of many of the foundational elements in jazz music. You've got the classic instrumentation of trad jazz where you're, you know, you get the clarinet in there, trombone and trumpet, and then the rhythm section. The song list of this record will surely be entertaining for anybody who's listening. And it's obviously entertaining for the audience because you can hear the audience interaction quite a bit throughout the whole album. It's an all-star cast of musicians, like you said, and that's why it's called the All-Stars <laughs> or his All-Stars. Um, they're all just deep in the history of this music. For those out there who think bebop is the start of jazz or kind of the correct starting place to learn this music, this record will prove you wrong. I don't understand. I, I've come across this notion before from especially kind of more academics or or just bop players that are uh that are you know they're fantastic musicians but they 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 purport this idea that anything before bebop or or late swing era is really irrelevant or unimportant or or something other than what we should consider jazz and i just could not disagree with them more um and this album proves why um, it's just a great recording. It is from 1951, so it's it's after a lot of the foundational elements we're talking about, but they keep that in here, and, and you can hear those things so well. The musical components date back to the beginnings of this music. They pull from ragtime, trad, jazz, and swing. In addition to pops, Earl Hines and Barney Biggert are well-featured, delivering endless amounts of swing every chance they can get. Jack Teagarden has a nice feature in Stardust. As I mentioned, Cozy Cole, Arvel Shaw, they hold the band together really nicely and they contribute some, some really cool solos as well. There are a couple of times where the musical arrangement is a little unclear and not chaotic, but um, it's just not succinct at moments. And then at certain other moments, it is hard to hear certain instruments at different times on tracks like you were alluding to part of that is because of technological uh, technological limitations that were occurring for that room you know it's an auditorium so some things can get muddled out easier than other venues um, so it's a little hard especially to hear the trombone at times especially when they're collectively improvising but overall you get you know, you get enough to be really satisfied and really happy with the product Louis Armstrong showcases his skills on both trumpet and vocals. He clearly illustrates, you know, his ability to entertain an audience like nobody's business. And he was an all-around entertainer. There's a lot to learn from Louis Armstrong. And this is a great starting place if you want to get into this style of, of jazz music. My overall score 
was an 8.1 out of 10. I just think there are kind of more um, relevant examples we have in, in the history of recorded jazz music from Louis Armstrong that have contributed a lot more to the development of jazz. But that doesn't take away from all the great moments on this album. And it is something that, that should be checked out. There's also a history of, of critics or people who buy the album being a little critical of this version because there is a full-length um, recording of the, of the concert called the, I think it's called the California Concerts, that is like three or four CDs long where you get a lot more of the tracks and you can hear a lot more of the tunes that they played. And this is kind of a condensed version and some of the tracks are a little out of order. For some reason, critics seem to have an issue with that. But if I think about live recordings, a lot of them are going to be out of order or they're only going to select the best moments or the best tunes that they played. And they'll usually people will usually record multiple nights and then pick the best songs that were recorded from each of those nights and then put it together. So I don't expect to get every song from a performance on a live recording in general. Um, so I don't know what the huge issue is there, but if, if you read about this album, you'll, you'll come across some of that criticism. Um, but I think all in all, it, it, there's a lot here to listen to and you get so much from the history of this music by listening to this record. Yeah, I totally agree with that sentiment of doing a live recording that way. I just don't really want to touch on like comedians when they film specials, they'll film two nights in the same room usually, and then they'll have two live performances and they can take the best from each. So I think this does a really good job. I don't think, I don't feel like I'm missing much in this. I feel like I get what I need to get from this. You know, obviously there's other stuff. And if you want to de dive deeper into that, you can, and you can get those other, you know, four CDs. But I think this does a really good job of highlighting what needs to be highlighted. So our overall score on this one uh, combined um, is going to be an 8.3 out of 10, which I think is, is really fair. Um, and so, I want to get y'all excited for our album that we're doing next episode, and it's going to be our modern album episode, and this one's going to be a little different than anything we've done. It's very modern, um, and the style is very modern. It's by a band uh, called Butcher, Butcher Brown, who's led by drummer Corey Fonville, who is the drummer for Christian Scott Atunde, which many of you will know um, who Christian Scott is. So it's his band based out of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, really cool. The lead, um, he's does the lead saxophone player does sax, trumpet, and sometimes vocals. He's not gonna do a vocals on this one, but this is called Camden Sessions. It's just a short session. They do four tracks, but they're all kind of longer tracks. They really get into it on the track, so each track's probably somewhere between six and ten minutes. So it's just a fun session to listen to. We're gonna have fun with it. We're gonna kind of dive into to the groove and funk and different newer jazz ideas. So. One of my favorite groups, modern groups to listen to. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited because I don't think Max has listened to a whole lot of Butcher Brown. I know uh, he's been exposed to a little bit. But one of my favorite groups, I'm excited to get Max's ideas because um, I think this is a really hip session, a really fun recording. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. I have checked out Butcher Brown before, but it's it's been mostly just 
you know, a couple songs here and there or some live recordings, you know, live YouTube clips that they've done. So it'll be cool to get into an album. And they did just come out with a brand new record um, a week or two ago. Um, so maybe in a later episode, we'll, we'll come across and, and explore that one too. But for now, we're going to do Camden Sessions, which I think is from 2018. Yep. Yep. 2018. Yeah. So, uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening really quickly. I want to say we do have a, an email. If you'd like to send in a listener question, our email is the jazz jam podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to have any feedback suggestions for albums or questions that you have that we could do for our jazz question of the day. Um, but yeah, so I just want to thank you all for your support and for Max Levy, I'm Dwayne Gunnels, and this has been an episode of The Jazz Jam. Bye.